it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by sweat and blood and dust, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Teddy Roosevelt. I wanted to read this quick little quote from him to get this episode going because we do not have a fake ad for you guys, and I'm sorry for anybody who's disappointed that they had to listen to that instead of a fake ad by Logan and myself. However, this is a quote that has given me much strength and appreciation over the last couple of weeks of my personal life, and so I can only hope that it can give you the same reprieve if you need to hear it. Also, before we get going into this episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Public Kings for Pedophiles. We hopped right into this episode with Flirt Cheap, and so I want to give them a proper space in this episode. Public Kings for Pedophiles is an organization that is dedicated to combating human trafficking and pedophilia by first just raising awareness and then turning that awareness into action. They are a friend of the pod, Mr. Hangman is has been a gracious gracious sponsor to the show and we cannot thank them enough for their continued support so if you're looking for any sort of dope dope merch because i know that they have it go to ph-fp.com and go check out what they have every quarter they also take proceeds from the shop you know the money that you guys spend and then they also donate that to another organization that is in the trenches with them so if you are looking to get some dope swag you help support this show you help support them but most importantly when you go spend some money at their shop you help support survivors and that is a very very important task that a simple purchase can go a long ways to actually make a meaningful impact so go check them out again that is ph-fp.com public kings for pedophiles turning awareness into action and one last thing about this episode, it is a long one. Logan and I are getting longer and longer by ourselves. And also anytime that we get with Flirt Cheap, things just get longer because we're all long-winded and we all have tangents. Anyways, I hope that you guys really enjoyed this episode. A nice little bow that I tie on the end of this episode. I will try to do this right now to encourage you guys to listen all the way through. I think it's a really good conversation, but again, that's up for you guys to decide and you vote with your time. Um, anyways, this episode is pretty much about diversifying your risk and how to manage that risk. We are going to look at the energy sector of Europe, and we're also going to look at the crypto markets and how everything of the last three months has impacted pretty much every labor market across the country. So with all of that being said, guys, I hope you enjoy this episode of Against the Mob, and um, we'll talk to you soon.
guys are ready for another episode of Against the Mob podcast. Of course, you got Logan Carpenter here, my good friend Matthew Billingsley, and we're bringing back one of our favorite guests. We're going to learn a bit, a little bit more, uh, get kind of an update. We had uh, Flirt Cheap on, who we're having again today, uh, back when the sanctioning began against Russia for the the terrible empire of the Soviets trying to retake their lands. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about kind of what has happened since then, how have the sanctions managed to affect Russia. Uh, how is the, the landscape over there looking and, and how it's going to affect us here at home? And uh, Flirt Chief's probably going to take a couple of victory laps and everything he called right. So we always look forward to that as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Flirt Chief. Yeah, and just to build off what Logan said, we when we started brainstorming for this episode, it was almost like what's happened since then. Um, because that was back in February when this invasion happened. So it's been over 100 days, and we're starting to see some very real, um, very real implications from the consequences of that actions in pretty much every imaginable market. And uh, with all that being said, thank you very much for joining us again, Mr. Flirt Cheap. Uh, well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate y'all letting me come on here. And um, I'm going to avoid the victory laps primarily because my memory is so bad. I forget most of the <laughs> calls that I've ever made right now. <laughs> in and out. Um, it's like when you're right that much, you don't even have to worry about what you got wrong. It, <laughs> there you go. That shows yeah, the, uh, the exactly. level, different, differing levels of narcissism within this group that we have here of all of our friends uh, where <laughs> I, I try to keep a journal under my pillow of everything I've gotten right in the last couple of years, just so I can rub it in people's noses. <laughs> Oh, that's perfect, man. Well, my self-esteem is so low, it's high that whenever people start complimenting me, I'm always like, what are they up to? What do people want from me? <laughs> I could use one on? more of that skepticism. That's probably healthier than the alternative of, of just enigmatically taking every compliment you get and just everybody yeah. loves me. <laughs> it improves my this is this is my level of narcissism. It improves my image of you when you compliment me. Cause I'm like, you you seem to know what you're talking about. It's really <laughs> You validated me. I will remember you. <laughs> exactly. If you go to imright.com, there's a picture of you, Logan, right there. <laughs> God, that is a good IP. I should probably look into that just to make sure that hadn't been nabbed up. Oh, it's taken. But anyway, <laughs> so you said you wanted to kind of get us off on the right foot here, Flirt, um, and kind of at least give us the general scope of like where all of this stems out from and kind of what this conversation is going to revolve about. And though we're going to go on our favorite tangents and go down all the rabbit holes, there is kind of a theme to all of this that you think is going to be uh, vitally important moving forward. Yes, definitely. And the most important thing that I think anyone can remember when they're trying to figure out how things are going to shake out is the supply of money in an economy versus the supply of goods in that economy. Um, there's a very simple metaphor that I'm certain a lot of y'all listening have probably heard before um, for understanding inflation. Um, but pretend you have an economy, pretend there's 10 apples and there's $10 in the economy. Um, in that year, if everyone wants to buy an apple, the apples on average are going to cost a dollar. Um, that's if this economy only has apples in it. If in the next year now we still have the same 10 apples for sale, but we have $20 now, those apples on average are going to cost $2 each because all of the money is being spent on the apples. No one wants to end the year with money they didn't spend. Um, in much the same way, when you view an economy, you need to look at the supply of money versus the supply of goods. Um, if the supply of money is increasing faster than the supply of goods is increasing, you're going to have inflation and you're going to have prices going up. And on average, everything is going to cost more. 
Whereas if you have an economy where the supply of goods is increasing faster than the supply of money, you're gonna have the exact opposite, which is deflation. Um, this occurs both at the small scale and at the large scale. Um, once you can understand that, it's a lot easier to understand what might happen in an economy if you withdraw half of the goods that people were buying the year prior uh, while keeping the money, money supply the same, or worse, increasing the money supply. Um, and, you know, obviously some people are going to say, well, you can look at this individual sector. This one didn't inflate. And yeah, that's true. Certain sectors the, are increasing their supply of goods a lot faster than other sectors. For instance, um, college tuition is going up incredibly fast because it's not a growing sector. Um, you know, if they really embrace the internet and uh, weren't, uh, you know, restricting the amount of people that could apply in any given year. Uh, the cost of tuition could go down realistically. Um, whereas, you know, another, another industry in the same economy, uh, like LASIK eye surgery, for instance, um, it's been benefited by technology to a staggering level to the point where LASIK eye surgery has gone down in price basically every year for the last three decades, regardless of the fact that the broader economy is inflating around it. Um, so when you take this now and you start looking at certain in, certain economies, like looking at Russia, looking at Europe, looking at Australia, Japan, uh, the EU as a whole, or the US, you can start to see how, you know, cutting yourself off from supplies while printing money is going to lead to an inevitable conclusion. Um, and we can start to talk about some of the smaller impacts that, you know, an individual might feel on the microeconomic scale that are stemming from the macroeconomic scale that everyone's experiencing. Um, let's see now. Um, and one thing that I think we'll get into later on today also is the, the repricing of labor and the repricing of assets here in the West um, as compared to Russia, which has benefited significantly from the sanctions, which was, uh, I don't want a victory lap here, but was like painfully obvious from the beginning. Because, right. um, you know, it's not like everyone's going to stop buying oil or gas. They hadn't prepared for it. No one really set up for it. Um, which is kind of like, you know, if you think about COVID, when COVID started in March 2020, there were a lot of industries that said, um, we're just going to stop doing things in office, or we're going to stop having people show up, but they weren't prepared for it. Like, you imagine like your elementary school, uh, if you've got kids, um, the school probably said all of the kids are going to learn from home now. Uh, and they snapped their fingers and said it's going to happen. Uh, yeah, they can try it, but like they hadn't set up any of the infrastructure for it. So a lot of students were basically left behind by the change. In much the same way, uh, Europe said, all right, Russia, we're going to sanction you tomorrow. And they snapped their finger, fingers thinking they were going to do it. But in reality, they hadn't set up any of the infrastructure for it. Um, Europe isn't energy independent. It's not food independent. Um, and it's worse. It's dependent on Russia specifically. Um, you know, it'd be one thing if Russia was a minor trade partner with Europe and maybe, uh, you know, accounted for four or five percent of their goods. You know, they'd be struggling, but they could make it. Um, but instead, Russia is a much larger trade partner with Europe than four or five percent. Um, and cutting that off overnight without any prep work whatsoever uh, was always doomed to fail. But anyways, I've been rambling here for a little while. Um, I'll let y'all hop in if you'll have any initial questions or reactions. Yeah, well, I just want to pick up on what you're talking about because I was I was doing some some digging around the art around the interwebs this uh, this fine afternoon about specifically Europe's dependence on Russian gas, and it 
it's one of those things in hindsight. I mean, we talked about, you know, who's actually going to get, who's going to feel the pinch about this in our, in our, in our episode sanctions for dummies, but I wasn't completely, I didn't understand the scope of how dependent Europe is on Russian natural resources, especially because, I mean, there's, I'm just looking at this article and it's talking about Norway, Europe's second biggest producer behind Russia has been pushing up production to help the, help the European Union towards its target of ending Russian reliance on, or, or its reliance on Russian fossil fuels by 2027. I mean, that is, you're talking about trying to ramp something up that's not even going to be a viable option for what, five years going on, you know, four, five, six years, if everything goes completely according to plan. And there's just all of this information about how much, how, how much of a squeeze Russia really has. I know that Germany met earlier this year to put in an emergency plan of specifically about its um, energy, or not independence, but its energy plan. And there was three parts to this plan. Let me see. Let me pull it up just so I, I have, make sure I get it right. You know, so there's three parts to it. There was the um, there was the early warning phase, which is what they're in now. And it says this stage is triggered when there are concrete, serious, and reliable indications that an event may occur, which is likely to lead to a significant deterioration of the gas supply situation and probably to the alarm or emergency level. Then moving on, you have the alarm phase. This stage is triggered when there is a disruption in the gas supply or an exceptionally high demand for gas, which leads to a significant deterioration of the gas supply situation. But the market is still able to cope with this disruption or demand without the need to take non-market-based measures, which then leads you to the emergency phase. This stage is triggered when, quote, there is an exceptionally high demand for gas, a significant disruption in gas supply, or another significant supply situation, and all relevant market-based measures have been implemented, but gas supply is insufficient to meet the remaining gas demand, so so that additional non-market-based measures need to be taken, in particular to ensure the supply of gas to protected customers. And so they're already, yeah, they're already ramping up. Like, oh, shit, like we're perfect. Here we are. The state apparatus, once again, getting ready to step in and seize the means of production if if the market can't meet the demand. Yeah, right. now, specifically, what do you think these non-market-based actions might be? Oh, I mean, my my guess off the top of my head is kind of the same. It's I would almost imagine it's like austerity only when it comes to like like an austerity money um, policy, almost the same as gas, right? They're going to pick and choose what the most important industries and sectors to receive natural gas are going to be. And I'm going to guess at the end of the day, it's not your average peasant. You know, yeah, that's that's usually how that goes. That's what I was thinking was uh, it's going to come in the form of some kind of either robust spending program where it uses all your tax money uh, to, to help out the system, or it's going to be circling the wagons to whoever's in charge. Me and my friends get to use gas, but everybody else has to take a break. Yeah, yep. that or mm-hmm. just um, or even just like gas is rationed, right? You're only mm-hmm. we're only going to be piping X amount of gas to homes on, you know, if you live on these streets, this if your house ends in an odd number, you may use your stove or furnace from X time to X time. You know, it's almost like the same where American <laughs> cities do with water be home for dinner. Yeah, most definitely. And if you look at what France is doing right now, actually, 
they've canceled um, several uh, summertime activities. I wish I had the specifics in front of me right now um, because of their energy issues. Um, Russia recently cut off, oh, sorry, Germany cut off some of the um, gas that goes to France through Germany through Nord Stream um, because Russia has uh, basically cut off a portion of what's being sent there. And France is saying because of the heat wave, we're not going to be having certain activities in the summertime. Um, but these activities are in places that have AC. Um, but the real issue is they don't want to have the significant strain of, you know, cooling these places down to accommodate people coming out to celebrate. And the only reason this is an issue is because they're they're having some issues with uh, gas power. And France isn't even particularly dependent on gas compared to some of the other states in Europe. Um, I would imagine if we were to take a peek around a few of them, we'd probably find some other instances of small rationing or um, government actions to cut down on consumption. Um, and you know, this is only going to continue further as we move further ahead. Um, and you know, this is despite several countries in Europe agreeing with Russia and basically buying their uh, gas from Russia in rubles. Um, I think four countries so far have uh, tripped over that and decided to just pay them in rubles. Um, and it's not a coincidence the Russian ruble is up 30% so far on the year from January. Um, and I believe the last time we were discussing the, uh, the current president of the US was basically tap dancing about how the ruble had fallen significantly. Um, but uh, you know that was a mechanical market action. That wasn't actual real people saying we don't want this anymore. And what um, was the the number we had come up with in pre-show there? That wasn't it ninety four billion and sixty one percent. Yeah, let me let me find EU? that real fast. Um, just yeah, one we, second. We can grab that. But um, you know, interestingly enough, people entities buying gas and supplies in the ruble from Russia isn't really the main driver that caused uh, the ruble to go up. Um, you know, when it went down, this was a very mechanical um, function of the markets. There were a lot of people who had invested money into Russia from the West, and they had to pull it out quickly before the sanctions went down. Uh, because there's concern that like, um, you know, if you don't get it out now, it's trapped forever, and you're not going to ever get it out. Um, and so let's say you've invested in um, a Best Buy store in Russia, and this store costs you uh, $200 million, which is an exorbitant amount of money. That's not how much Best Buys cost, but let's, let's pretend it's $200 million. And you hear the sanctions are coming, you're a Western investor, you want to get your money out at any cost. Maybe you have a fire sale and you sell the Best Buy for $160 million worth of the ruble. And then you also have to sell that ruble as quickly as you can back into your own currency. Um, and so we saw the net of maybe 80 to 90% of all the investments that the West had made into Russia being liquidated and sold. And then all of that currency was um, exchanged for euros, for dollars, for yen, um, basically at the same time. So you're watching that happen um, in slow motion and that pushed the value of the ruble down. It's a very mechanical move and nothing to do with demand and supply. And then uh, on the flip side, you also had um, Russians who had invested in the West having to do the flip side of that. But there was a lot less of that than the other way around. Like we were the ones who had the most stranded assets in Russia. Um, like Burger King, for instance, was not able to sell any of their franchises in Russia. Their entire investment in Russia uh, was lost. Um, you know, whichever, whoever their partner was in Russia had like a majority share. Um, and so had the voting rights saying like, hey, we're not shutting these down. We're not selling them. And Burger ah, King yeah. wasn't able yeah. to negotiate in time. And so they just, they lost that ownership share. 
Uh, they you have think you're not the king, your burger Putin is king. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I wonder if there's some uh, some <laughs> rags to riches isn't the right term, but some like lofting into that new billionaire space that we're going to have from one of these Western guys who rather than selling his share was just buying everything pennies on the dollar and just has unbelievable stake in Russia at this point. You know, it's possible if relationships ever get normalized again to the point where the average person can make transactions uh, cross country from Russia to Europe. Um, if you held through this entire thing, <laughs> hold. Uh, yeah, it's possible. <laughs> hold. It's definitely possible. <laughs> this is like Wall Street bets, but times 900. Yeah, right. just some, some big old balls. <laughs> if Wall Street's bets had some nuclear weapons and was talking about potentially using them. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. But um, at, at the scale of these investments, I don't think there's any specific individuals who can make that decision. Um, you know, it's mostly like, um, you know, public funds, public funding, not public, sorry, it's um, uh, in a corporation per se, um, that's publicly owned. And so, you know, you as the individual can't be like, nuts, I'm doing this, you've instead got to like, talk to your committee and see what the uh, the director has to say, yeah, exactly. And they're going to talk about risk and, you know, uh, the risk conversation behind that would basically cut anything off of the needs right. of anyone. Do you guys, anyone who wanted to. Do you guys want to pull your money out safe now, or do you want to be big dick boys like me and double down on Russia? Yeah, basically it was take a 7% haircut now, or do you want to bet on some future that we know nothing about with no certain date in the future? Um, a third of the shareholders might die by the time the market opens up again. <laughs> That's a good point too. The people investing in that, it's like that old, uh, the problem with general management and professional sports of like, you got to have these guys that make long-term decisions that know they're going to be fired in five to 10 years anyway. So they're it's well, like, exactly. we'd really like you to look out for the long-term health of this franchise we built rather than trying to save your job. Even though if you don't try to save your job, we're going to can you at the end of the season. Exactly. And a slight detour I'll make, then we'll get back on, on topic. Uh, in terms of risk, you know, we talk about people dying in like, you know, 10 years or so. Uh, the only people who can ever afford to make like big dick and big nut investments are people under 40. Uh, past that, it's time to slow down, like no matter who you are. So if you're listening here, uh, take that into consideration. If you're young, fucking take a, a risk, whatever the fuck it is, do it. And if you're old, please do not bet your children's future <laughs> anything crazy <laughs> grandpa doesn't need to be buying bitcoin right now is what you're saying. uh yeah in, in effect yeah actually i am i am uh you know you're betting on a future technology and a separation of finance and state um if you're older 45 or so um you really can't be doing that in any sort of large proportion of your your savings or your investments you know well since we're brushing up on crypto uh i took a little bit of a, a nap from watching my crypto every day and it seems like it's taken quite a bath as of recent. Uh, <laughs> do you think this is a direct relation to what we're seeing going on overseas? A lot of people kind of lofted this as maybe being the protection against inflation, but we've really kind of seen it lose its value in the, the last six months or so. So the crypto thing is going to be a long conversation. And um, if you guys have anything you want to talk about uh, geopolitical or macro, we should probably get that <laughs> out of the way first and maybe set aside like 45 minutes for crypto. It's very long explanation, but I'm fully prepared to give it. That's fair. We'll circle back or, or even do a later episode if we want to, if we, we decide we spend too much time on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, so now if we circle back to Russia, the ruble and whatnot, there was a... 
uh, a, a number that you were going to pull up there, Matt, uh, about uh, yeah. trade between Russia and Europe? I got it Did right it? here. Yep, yeah, and, and so it's talking about Germany um, when it says it, but it is not the only country still engaged in the Russian market. As Europe has continued to buy Russian gas supplies in huge quantities, with the Center of Research on Energy and Clean Air revealing that the EU has bought 61% of Russian supply on the market since the country has invaded Ukraine. The bloc has bought 57 billion of the 93 billion worth of fossil fuels available from the Kremlin, including 25.5 billion of natural gas. That's, that's, I think that's, that's really interesting. The fact that it's 57 billion, uh, which is well more than 41 billion, which is kind of what we sent over to Ukraine to support them. It's like, what are these sanctions even mean if we're going to pretend to support Ukraine while lofting up the the Russian economy. (laughs) Yeah, basically. I mean, the sanctions were like a blockade from Westerners making any further investments into Russia. Um, And they also um, even blockaded Russia's ability to pay back um, anyone who bought Russian bonds and is uh, owed interest. Uh, Those people are not able to get their money paid back to them from Russia. So they were forcing Russia to default on money that was loaned to them. But uh, what? Why does Russia care? Now they got free money; they don't have to pay you back for it. And it's right. Like, <laughs> all of the all of the effective sanctions I've seen have so far been in Russia's benefit. Um, there's a small handful that seem to be in Russia's, uh, not in Russia's benefit. But you know, the amount of money that they've made selling gas to Europe now since then has been uh, absolutely crazy. And they have Europe under their finger basically because I mean they can tell Europe whatever they want at this point. Um, you know, buy in rubles, then Europe has to buy in rubles because they don't have any time. It's like, okay. um, it's not uh, great for our uh, whole petrodollar situation. No, it most definitely isn't. Um, you know, and last time we talked about SWIFT and mm-hmm. um, the usage of SWIFT being a forced demand for the US dollar. Um, and we basically booted Russia off of SWIFT for the most part. And Russia has been like, okay, cool, send us rubles. Which is perfectly fine. Create a market that that's going to challenge what you've based your entire economy on. It seems like if you really wanted to put pressure on them when you do these sanctions, the smartest thing would have been to ramp up our production in these areas, right? Where we could have filled the void of all these European nations. And granted, it's, it's more expensive to put it on a ship and take it across the sea. But I mean, you had to see that there, this people aren't going to stop driving their cars to work. So we know there's going to be a void there when we, we place these sanctions and, and nobody had the foresight to to do anything about it other than just keep buying oil from Russia? Yeah, ramping up production is a lot tougher than, you know, it seems. I mean, people think like, I mean, we do have a lot of reserves here and we do have a lot of, um, uh, you know, drilling that's being done on a regular basis, but it's very tough to convince businesses to ramp up, especially when they don't know, you know, how long it's going to last. If they don't have any guarantees, um, it's much safer for businesses to sit back and say like, well, the price is going up. All of my previous investments are in profit. Why would I participate? Mm-hmm. You know, why would I invest now on expanding into you know riskier assets that I have if I don't know the market's going to stay here? Um, and it's kind of the same picture across most of the U.S. and Canada and Mexico. And and then beyond that too, I'm not an expert in the different grades of crude. Excuse me. I know there's certain grades that are used for certain things, and the U.S. has um, more of the grades that are used for transportation, the less of the grades that are used for like plastics and other, other sorts of, um, petro products. But, um, you know, I do wonder who would be able to export the most to Europe, um, and who would have the capacity to fill that void. Cause I honestly, 
I don't think there is anyone. And the biggest uh, thing as well was natural gas. It wasn't um, uh, transportation gasoline. Um, and when it comes to natural gas, uh, the exports here from the US are very difficult to get over there. Um, most of Europe's natural gas is Middle East and Russia. And obviously we've been fighting over the Middle East for the last like 25 years, maybe longer into the 90s, uh, parts of Africa as well. I mean, we've got pipe, I say we, look, look at me. <laughs> we have five little invasions and suddenly it's my house. <laughs> so uh, over there, they have um, several pipelines going from Iraq through Syria, um, through Turkey. Um, and then obviously there's all the pipelines from Russia, but for us to get natural gas over there, we have to use what's called a liquefied natural gas, um, which is when it's basically uh, chilled to incredibly freezing temperatures, uh, put on these massive tanks on boats, specific types of boats that are able to keep it basically cold enough that it's liquefied um, and then shipped over. And then you have to have a specialized receiving port because it's pressurized and it's cold at the same time. And there's only certain types of valves that could take it off. And, you know, the amount of LNG ports there are in Europe is uh, staggeringly limited. They're mostly in Portugal and the UK. Um, Germany, for instance, doesn't have any, as far as I remember. Um, I think they decided to build their first one in February. So yeah, in 2027, 2028, maybe 2030, depending on how the supply chain looks, they'll have that finished and they'll be ready to accept natural gas by ship in Germany. Um, but, you know, as far as replacing what Russia is currently saying, though, I think they're boned, honestly. Yeah. I don't really think there's anyone who can really pick that up. I think what's most interesting about this and all of this, I mean, but what you're talking about, right? Why would a company, especially in the political climate of America, why would we, why would I extend billions of dollars of risk to ramp up oil production when there's a Congress that's actively trying to push a Green New Deal and put me out of business, right? Why would I stick my nuts on the table for you ungrateful fuckers is, is a way that you could look at it. Um, I think though that that ties into a larger um, conversation, which kind of, I, what I see this whole thing, the umbrella under, is that we're really starting to see the, the effects of the long-term assumption that things are always going to be okay and the status quo is always going to be positive in our favor, right? Because if you look at, you know, for lack of a better term, Pax Americana and what happened specifically at the fall of, um, of Nazi Germany and the, the new American empire that's created post-World War II, there's so many, there's so much momentum, so much inertia that starts to build on this idea of peace, even though, yeah, sure, we're at odds with the Soviet Union and China in the Cold War, but it's never a hot war. And then especially with the fall of the Soviet Union and kind of the normalization of relations with Russia, we're starting to see the the effects of 30 years of assuming that a historical antagonist towards the West is always going to be on our side. And when they suddenly make a move that isn't all of that radically unpredictable, it blows my mind that nobody had even thought about talking about how to prepare for this potential shakeup, you know, and at the end of the day, it's all risk management, right? That's one of my favorite parts of, of, of certain, certain jobs I've done was risk management. What could happen? What can go wrong? And building a plan around that and it blows my, it's absolutely baffling that the EU, specifically the EU, because America, even though we're in the West, we're in a completely separate situation. 
um, and circumstances, but the EU had really no preparation whatsoever if Russia decided to get uppity and then they say, oh, we're experiencing um, we're experiencing some supply trouble because we couldn't get our stuff out of Canada before you guys sanctioned us. And now we're going to cut 40 percent of the oil or that we've already cut off. And just you and, and, and everybody cries foul in Europe and saying this is just a, you're just saying that. And it's also like, well, you're arming it's it, it's when it comes down to it, it seems so simple. And the fact that Europe had had just been operating with this assumption, this this uh, this de facto operating standard that we're always going to have a decent relationship with Russia or our other energy suppliers. Therefore, no need to do anything because it's cheap right now. And our people like these cheap things. Yeah, definitely. There's a, it's a phrase that I like to use a lot is like a vanity of the present where people tend to presume that certain things that were problems in the past are just not problems anymore in the present, that we've solved all of those things. We don't have to think about them. And so you have politicians who would never ever consider making any sort of policy about what happens if we run out of food. It's just not in their head. Like the, the concept instead up there is, uh, you know, famine is a thing of the past. We haven't had a major famine since the 80s in the Western world. Um, maybe even longer than that. I know that like back in the 1930s and 40s, famines were fairly common, uh, but they just haven't happened in a while and people think we've solved them and we really haven't. We just haven't experienced any because for the most part, we've been fairly lucky. And, um, you know, Europe, the EU as a whole, as a political union, can't function. Um, it's got a clock on it as far as I'm concerned. Yep. And it's time is going to run out. Um, you know, Germany countries- and friends can only last for so long <laughs> you say germany and friends i prefer germany in their toxic relationship <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a better they're, way to put it <laughs> they're definitely not the ones winning in that relationship um but you know in general most of the parties in the eu who are benefiting from it um are, are benefiting because they are essentially operating above and beyond their means and still receiving everything they need um, you know, they're, they're not feeling any consequences for what I would consider to be uh, poor state actions, poor state level actions. Um, and, uh, you know, we talk about like, oh, we need gas, we need food, we need electricity. Uh, for the most part, they just have not been thinking about it in, you know, long term, a long term matter. Like they're surrounded by uh, several unstable places. Uh, you know, you consider even just the borders of most European states have changed significantly in my lifetime. Um, I know we were talking about Yugoslavia last night, but then even beyond that, the board, like North Macedon, that's a new country. It's right. only been around for like five years or something. Um, they've Wait, gotten... they found mastodons? <laughs> big ones. Yeah, yeah, the biggest, man. Um you know, good chunks of Northern Africa are unstable. Libya looks like they're going to enter into another civil war, um, which is, it's a proxy war. If you look to, if you look close enough into it, um, the U.S. supported government or the CIA-backed government lost an election to one that's been funded by, um, uh, I'd say, Eastern uh, Eastern countries, Eastern powers, most likely. Um, and the CIA-backed government has decided not to step down after losing the election. And the other, the other parties within the Libyan power. We were democratically is. elected first, God damn it. <laughs> basically, basically, man. But the other power controls all of the uh, oil fields in Libya. And so they have shut down all of the oil experts, exports in Libya, I think two weeks ago, a week ago. 
Um, and they haven't turned them back on. And they're basically starving out the ruling power because ruling power is getting paid from these oil fields. Um, and, you know, that's like a soft civil war right now. But like the civil war that started after we murdered Gaddafi um, didn't end very long ago. And it's very likely to start again. Um, and then you look into the Middle East. Um, most of that isn't very stable either. And then you look at Russia and Russia is I wouldn't consider it a stable regime in terms of what you can expect from them as a trading partner. Um, but you might say that like the, the, current, the current government in power is stable in the sense that it's probably not gonna change anytime soon. Um, so, I mean, Europe is surrounded by um, not the best trading partners and Europe is dependent on its trading partners for a lot of like the bare necessities of life. And um, until they really face facts with that and start making harder choices, uh, I think life is going to get worse for a lot of countries in Europe. How many of these countries do you think are kind of self-inflicted wounds from obviously the Green New Deals and American policy? But there's certainly, I would imagine, a, a correlation between the countries that are really worried about their carbon footprint that are not having, you know, they've gone through couple decades now of decreasing their production in these fields and, and kind of they're creating their own national natural resources. And I guess that kind of couples with just simply being more developed. I mean, I know we're that way in America. In a lot of respects, we import tons of things here simply because we've kind of become this consumer economy. We're, we're like, you know, we're not that all of us are out of poverty in America, but we can look at our neighbors around the world and go, well, they can make things for 10 cents a dollar because, or 10 cents an hour because, well, they don't have any food anyway, so they, they <laughs> we've mm -hmm. we've uh, deregulated or killed their economy, so that all they can do is is find these meager jobs to create the the funding for the aristocratic society that is the American Empire. Yeah, most definitely. And like as a brief note before I answer your question, um, we exported all of our manual labor because it was cheaper. Um, and now a good chunk of like the degreed laptop class works from home. And the thing about working from home is like you can do it from anywhere. Um, and it won't take very long before employers here in the US figure out that they can export all of their non-manual labor as well. And a lot of the white collar class is gonna be in heavy competition with people who are used to working six days a week, who are used to working 12, 13, 14 hours a day and are not only used to it, but they're excited to do it because they're gonna do it for 70% of what an American makes, which is gonna be a, a king's ransom in mm -hmm. Argentina, in yeah, Vietnam. Potential generational wealth for them, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of money in Nigeria. It's a lot of money in these places. Um, but now to answer your question about self-inflicted wounds caused by, um, uh, you know, government making decisions that might not be advisable. So it, it does get a bit more subtle when you talk about like um, generating electricity, because um, for instance, there's nothing wrong with renewables. Like they, they function just fine within the boundary of what they're supposed to do. Um, but as is often the case, most bureaucrats and politicians don't understand what they're doing. Um, and I'll give you the example of what Germany has done and why it's caused what's happened over there, um, just as like a picture for this. So Germany, um, at one point, I think 15 years ago, had enacted a feed-in tariff. Um, and just as an explanation for people listening, a feed-in tariff means that uh, you live in a house and let's say you do something that generates electricity um you get paid by the utility for what you what you send into the what you feed into the, the utility and you also get like an additional bit of money from the government so the government was incentivizing people uh with a feed-in tariff to just 
connect whatever the fuck they wanted to their power grid and just feed power into it, which is really inefficient. Like rooftop solar, it's great. But the moment you start trying to like feed what you're generating into the grid, you start causing problems. Because um, to use a metaphor, um, electricity moves down lines kind of similar to how water pressure moves down lines. Um, and like if you're generating all of your water pressure in one area, you want to pump it down to like a neighborhood. Um, that's great. Now, let's say one of the houses down there says, hey, we're going to connect our own little water pump and start pumping water down here. Suddenly, it's a lot harder for you to pump water past that house in much the same way that if you start making electricity at your house and like the, the utility says, uh, well, we need to get to everyone on the other side of your house. You don't have enough electricity for them. And so us pumping past you is going to be a bit of work. Um, and this is because of the difference between active power and reactive power. So I'm sure some electrical engineer nerd is going to come in here and be like, oh, actually, that's not exactly, but more or less, that's, that's how it works. Um, so Germany was paying people to just pump electricity into the grid wherever, the, wherever they wanted, wherever the fuck they wanted, with no real grid studies being done, no performance studies being done. And they found out like, wow, this shit is not profitable. It's not working for us. And then they had like um, the pendulum swung the exact opposite direction. And so the next political party that got in was like, wow, the this, um, these renewables, they're horrible. We're going back to coal. Um, and so they went back to coal and then they lost. And then the, the next political party comes in and is like, uh, look at all this pollution from coal, this is terrible. And so they tried to, to shift again. And uh, you, know, you get to the situation where there's no coal, all of the renewables in the country are like a bit old and really inefficient because they weren't, they weren't planned in any sort of way or, or made to efficiently deliver power around the country. And, you know, you have people who are just swinging blindly at um, policy when it comes to utilities and electricity generation. And now you've got a country that hasn't really planned anything out, um, shut down all of their nuclear as of January for, I don't know what fucking reason. Um, there might have been a good one, but probably not. Um, and was wholly dependent on natural gas. And, you know, to be clear, natural gas is one of the most efficient forms of hydrocarbons we have for generating electricity and energy. But then, you know, obviously they're wholly dependent on Russia for imports of all their natural gas. And now suddenly they're in a position where their electricity, their electric grid's in fucking shambles. And, you know, it's not because any one type of energy generation is bad. And, you know, they're moving back to coal because that's the only thing that they have there that's ready to generate right now. Um, but in general, whenever you let politicians try and decide how electricity gets generated, where and why, for the most part, they're gonna be wrong. Uh, no matter like central support. centralized planning that's we've made that point a lot that the the issue with centralized planning is that you only have one decision so if it's the wrong decision it doesn't go well but it's especially magnified when then you have career politicians who are probably lawyers their whole life making choices on energy grids that they know dick all about <laughs> i mean it seems like a pretty simple concept you just explained about the, the water pressure uh metaphor and explaining that to me in five minutes it's like, okay, I kind of get what you're talking about there. Clearly, that wasn't even brought up when they started passing this. Like, or it was and they didn't care. Or they yeah. didn't care. Yeah, it might have been brought up because like, it's tough too because you know, when you look at a homeowner and they, they're generating electricity and they say to themselves, my electrons are just as good as your electrons. Why can't I get paid for them? It's a fairly compelling argument. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, telling them like, well, it's bad. You didn't build a grid to supply it to everybody and it fucks up my thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you, know, you also end up having to like, well, how do I account for the additional cost of like 
building reactive power facilities on the transmission line that already exists to account for what this person has installed in their house. And um, it's not cost efficient. Most of the time it's a net negative for everybody involved, but it's hard to explain that to someone who says like, well, look, why can't we power our own neighborhood? And it's like, you can just not the way you're doing it. And that's a, it's a nuanced conversation. I think most people don't want to have it. And, um, you know, especially when it comes to like, what does a politician say? Um, for the most part, they're going to say whatever their voters want and their voters are not all electrical engineers. Their voters are just people who paid for rooftop solar, or paid for a, um, a smaller uh, a wind turbine for their-, for their Or even for whatever. don't have any of those things, but have an emotional investment in reducing our carbon footprint. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a very good point as well. Peasants. <laughs> but again, I know I've been rambling for a little bit. So if y'all want to hop in or if y'all have any um, thoughts about any of these, like, feel free. Matt, it feels oh, like your turn. Crickets. You got anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I was, I was going to try to be kind. No, it, it, what's, what's most interesting. And cause I'm, I mean, we, we brought you on for a reason because, um, you're definitely the subject matter expert in a lot of this stuff. And I have to always defer to my geopolitical brain and looking, looking at like long-term patterns and whatnot. And what's most interesting about what we're, what we're experiencing um, when we're specifically talking about energy dependence or, um, or anything of the such in Europe or the instability of Africa and the Middle East surrounding Europe What's what kind of back to back to what I was talking about earlier? We've we've had this nice assumption that the world will always continue the way it is, and I think it's just because we've been spoiled, specifically as Americans, but I think also as Europeans too. Sure, it depends on who you are, where you are, right? Circumstances of everyone's always different, but as a whole, we haven't really experienced a, a lot of turmoil or shaking of the tree to the status quo in quite some time. I mean, if you start looking back around, when's the last time that we would, that, that these type of things have been happening, right? When's the last time that you had to worry about Russian incursions somewhere? When's the last time that Americans had to worry about rampant inflation? When's the last time we've seen regime change, right? Like you start going back and these are things that we haven't experienced in 40 years, I mean, these are things that haven't happened in my lifetime, haven't happened in y'all's lifetime. You know, my parents were in their 20s, early 20s, you know, late teens when all of this was going on. And we've had such a long, nice streak that we're so caught off guard. But like we've been talking about, is it not, it's not all that unreasonable to assume that you can't, it can't be sunshine forever. And I think take, taking this to like monetary policy, right? Paul Volcker did something that was fantastically ambitious and bold to say, like, you know, he was directed by Carter to say we're going to fight inflation. And he took that directive to heart. And sure. And he raised, I mean, what was it? 10 months, 12 months, 14 months. He took the interest rate from single high single digits to 20%, 18%. I mean, that's a very ambitious move. And it was so unpopular because guess what? Guess what Carter got slammed for? He got slammed for the long gas lines. He got slammed for talking about how you might need to wear a sweater inside this winter because we don't have quite the energy independence that America needs. We, and, and then along comes a cowboy from California in the form of Ronald Reagan, who's who promises Americans good things and then gets to benefit from, you know, that 
where it really starts is that directive to start fighting inflation. And what we were talking about the other night um, on our Liberty Orgy about, uh, you, I think you were talking about specifically, Flirt, about this lack of leadership. And I've talked about it on this podcast. I know Logan and I have spoken about it. Oh, we've probably talked about it together on one of our episodes. But you, but we have a crisis of leadership, and it seems like nobody is willing from the local level to the national level to actually step up and do an unpopular thing that's not politically expedient, but it is in the benefit of everybody in the long term, right? It would be beneficial for the Fed to get in there and say, you know what? It was really bad of us to print $7 trillion when we shut down the economy. We're going to have to correct that. Otherwise, things are going to get a lot worse. But what we're going to get is this half-ass effort that's going to kowtow and tiptoe around the around the real issue. So you're going to have inflation continue while recession start, you know, and it's like you're going to get the, the worst of both worlds instead of having to like suck it up and deal with it. And I wonder, and now this is just kind of the question that's running in my mind, I wonder what has led us to this moment, where are the Teddy Roosevelts of our world? Where are the where are the Winston Churchills for all of their faults and their flaws? Where is like this enigmatic leader who is willing to just step up, put their nuts on the table, and say, "This must be done. It will not be easy, but it's got to be done." And this is why. And I, I don't know if it's just like the political culture, but I don't see any of this getting better. I don't see Europe resolving its energy issues anytime soon. I I mean, and this I try because I know that I just ripped Jamie apart for being a, a nihilist the other <laughs> night. But I when I look at the geopolitical spectrum, I, I have a very hard time seeing how things get better anytime soon. I'm not saying it's always going to be doom and gloom, but I see 2023 being worse than 2022 and 2024 being worse than 2023 because something has got to give. Yeah, I, they are going to be worse. I don't really see any way out for the most part. And again, I also feel bad about that because, you know, we're calling Jamie Blackfield and whatnot. Um, oh, we ripped him up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In that one specific avenue, I wanted to see some hope. Um, but like when it comes to the macro and the economic side, like it's it comes it boils down to basic math in a lot of ways. And in that, it's kind of hard to fight. Like, for instance, if we had Paul Volcker in the Fed right now, it would not matter. Um, they're in a position where they can't do what he did. Um, it's, it's basically impossible. Um, back then, all of the government bonds, the, the majority of them was long-term bonds. It was like 30-year and 10-year notes. Uh, if, you raise the overnight, if you raise the overnight lending rate, um, it, you have, it doesn't really affect the Treasury's ability to pay until like, the existing bonds mature. So, you know, you could do that right away. And as long as the economy recovered quickly, the treasury didn't feel much pain. Right now, the average treasury notes like three year, uh, three year treasury term. Um, so you raise the interest rate significantly within one year, the treasury can't afford to pay it. Uh, just one year, just because of how much they've got to cycle over on a repetitive basis. Um, and the worst part is like, it's not even the Fed's fault. It's just the, the Congress and the Senate's fault. And it's funny because like Powell is going to be testifying before the Senate Banking Committee this week, I think on Wednesday. Um, and those are the people who are directly responsible for this right now because they can't, they never saw a spending bill they didn't like and they didn't sign off on. And they're going to be questioning him about like, why did you print so much money? And then like the second half of that question is, why did you print so much money that we used, that we needed? Why did you print that? <laughs> yeah. right. They printed it for you, dumbass. <laughs> right. That's a really good point. 
but like you know if you decide to listen in on that testimony i guarantee you you're going to be getting some clueless fucking senators asking that exact question and you know blaming it on the fed and like yeah it's the fed's fault the fed should have said no we're gonna let interest rates go up um to whatever the market wants to pay for your toxic debt that's what the fed should have said mm -hmm. but you know it's not how they operate unfortunately and yeah we talk about heroism uh being completely absent from like basically every hall of government um when they say hard times create strong men those strong men don't emerge at the beginning of the hard times they emerge right. at the end <laughs> Yes, it takes a, it's a generational quote. <laughs> you got to grow up in those hard times. <laughs> you, don't, yeah, you don't get exactly. that six pack after three years. You know? <laughs> the, the good times are ending, Matt. Uh, we had a 40 year run after the 80s ended. And um, unfortunately, the good news is your kid's going to be one strong motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're among the weak men. We might even be the weak men ourselves. Like, who can really say what we might have looked like if we were born? 40 years ago i have no right. idea and i don't even want to give that generation credit either they fucking sucked yeah they, <laughs> right. they ripped a nation up for but, sure you know, we also sucked as well we also suck as well you know there, there's blame all around uh where this is concerned. right it, it feels like uh the boomer generation did a good job of destroying the economy and the millennial did a, generation did a good job of whining about it and pointing and that was about as, as much impact as we had that's a yeah. fair point. Yeah. And so now, because now we're on this, this conversation, I'd like to, I mean, let's talk about the repricing of labor, because now we're talking about like, um, we're talking about hard times, the, the consequences of our actions. I mean, we're starting to see it in a lot of real ways. I mean, the, the, the price to build a new home where I am is, you know, if you go, if you go nice, you want to build a really nice home, $450 a square foot. If you want to build a decent home, $400 a square foot. You want to build a piece of shit, $370. I mean, $370 a square foot to build a piece of shit. That is a huge repricing from the days where it's like somebody listed a house and it's like they want $200 a square foot. What are they smoking? And here's the crazy <laughs> thing is that wasn't even long ago. That was in 2019. That was in 2020. We were talking about two, three years ago. We were looking at the market saying, these sellers are outrageous. How dare they demand this much for their 40-year home? And then all of the people that bought in 2020 at those prices then got to go back and resell at astronomical markups. I mean, I, there was this house that I took over. It was on the market for years. No one could sell it. Um, the only way that we got it sold, it was just like radically aggressive price cuts, right? The market will not bear what you want for it. Get over it. So we ended up selling it for like 350 That same house just resold <laughs> at 650 15 months later. That guy's so fucking mad that you sold his house. <laughs> yeah right well it's like, but i think and, and you are you're correct i mean there's definitely it's like what we don't know right but i think the craziest thing is how we are seeing real time this just complete reshifting of what value is i mean there's like there's a plumber up here right they work on they work on on-demand hot water heaters and that type of those type of mechanical system they're booked out for the next four months if you I would like if you would like them to come they have an emergency booking rate of $300 an hour, one hour minimum, 
and everything rolls up. So we work an hour and 10 minutes, it's two hours. Because And they can do that because that is the repricing of that commodity. And in a world where, and it, we're really starting to see this shift where, like you were talking about, like this white collar laptop degree class. Sure, there's always going to be a lot of work for that class, but now it's going to have to start now as time moves on, it's going to have to start competing with overseas market. There's a really good book I read in college. It's called Capital Moves, and it follows the company RCA. They used to make radios and then televisions back in the day, way before our time, but it, it follows their move as a company from their production plan in Camden, New Jersey, and then out to Indiana, and then down to Kentucky, and then eventually down to Mexico. And and the whole point of that book was it's it's like it's 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 labor it's essentially production pursuing cheaper labor cost and then once that left the states that labor it's never coming back right RCA is never going to say actually let's move our plant from Mexico back to Camden New Jersey it's never going to happen and I think that's the most interesting thing is as we start to see the 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 white collar laptop industry start to be shifted overseas or at least the opportunity for overseas markets to compete what cannot be competed with is the plumber that's actually going to show up to your house and fix your in on-demand hot water system so you have radiant in-floor heat it's going to be the person God, what a what a frustrating call with a pakistani telemarketer uh, to fix your <laughs> toilet <laughs> Oh my Have goodness. Things that would make set. you just want to walk out in the woods and end it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm I mean, done. Shit. I mean, even the Pakistanis got to look out because AI is taking over telemarketing. I mean, you give it a year or two, they're going to be out of a job. What the fuck are they going to do? <laughs> well, they'll all be coders then if they know what's what. <laughs> yeah. And, so and it's always, well, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to talk about the example, but if you want to finish your point. Oh, you no, go no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. The, so the example that I was talking about before we started recording, um, so I was at a crypto convention last week in Austin called Consensus. And um, I, I met a dude there who's, um, they run a fairly large uh, crypto exchange and they're trying to expand and they needed a bunch of coders to hire. Um, so he was in charge of like creating a team of basically, uh, I think 10 or 11 coders. His initial goal when he started out was to to attract coders that are here in the US that already work in competing firms. And um, he was coming in and offering them what he thought was like the top of the fucking market, like mid six figures. And by mid, I mean 150, I don't mean 500, um, for these like specifically like crypto native coding positions. And he was having trouble getting them. Like their, their employers were basically um, offering him, offering 10% above what he was offering to keep their employees. Um, and that was the market he was finding. And he was, he ended up having to hire, I think like four or five of his team are in Brazil and Argentina. And, you know, he didn't want to do it initially, but he was able to pay them like 30% below what he would be paying an American. They're working just as good. They're more than happy to put in like 11, 12, 13, 14 hour days, work six days a week. Um, because the amount of money he was offering them was basically unheard of in their country. And the only reason he didn't think to like, you know, hire his entire team from over there was because he wasn't used to the idea yet. But now with work from home um, and with the general contraction of the labor market to the point where it's like this tight and specific things, uh, most anyone who's used to hiring and who's going to be hiring overseas is going to get a lot used to hiring over, sorry, anyone who's hiring, who's hiring now is going to get a lot used to hiring overseas. 
And once they're used to doing it, I think a lot of the people who are comfortably working from home right now are going to find it a lot harder to switch and find a, a job to replace that very soon. Um, and this is going to sound bad, but I think there was like a brief opportunity from uh, 2020 to maybe the end of this year, early 2023, when people who do work from home can shift to you know, make a sideways shift to a very similar job for like an astronomical salary increase. Um, but after that, it's going to be very, very difficult because um, as, as we get used to it, much the same way you move that plant to Mexico and all the infrastructure is in place. They're used to the currency swap. They're used to the increased insurance. They're used to buying security for this place. The financial model is set for Mexico. It's impossible for them to set a model for New Jersey without extra costs. Why do that to pay more? And, you know, the much the same way that once hiring managers get used to like, oh, you know, Brazil is on the same uh, you know, time zone as New York, uh, Peru is on the same time code as Houston. Uh, this is how much they expect over there. I don't have to pay for health insurance, blah, 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 blah. Once the model is set for hiring over there, it's not coming back. And uh, that's one thing we need to get used to, because as you're saying, the only type of labor that can't be outsourced in this current inflationary environment is going to be manual labor. Um, stuff that's in person and otherwise stuff that's like very impossible to replace with uh, computers. Um, so specific sales roles, I think that's never going to really be exported, um, this, especially a B2B, which is uh, one business to another business. The, that type of sales, uh, I think, is always going to be Americans. It's not going to be computers, but um, there's going to be a massive repricing of labor because, you know, we're printing a fuck ton of money and most people are saying like, hey, it's a lot harder for me to live. Um, it's a lot more expensive for me to live. Uh, if I'm going to work, I need a lot more money. And then at the same time, if you're in a constrained market, like you said, the plumber, is he the only one in that market or is there another one? Competing there's maybe two, maybe three. I mean, there's not a lot, but a lot of times, you know, so like getting down into the nitty gritty details of this particular market, there's a, you know, there's, there's three or four big builders in town. And they have their own, you know, like they have their own electricians that do all of their wiring. They have their own plumber that does, you know, so like there's probably five or six plumbers in this area and four of them are attached to builders. And so that get, leaves you two that are kind of freelance, but they're so booked up. I mean, now you're having to have, now you're calling people to drive an hour away to get up here and do work. And they're charging you the second they leave their house because they can. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got to offer them a cabin in the woods for the weekend there. So, sometimes. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's amazing what's your – go ahead. Interesting, too, to, to see all these jobs that are, are moving overseas and the – like you said, the manual labor positions are the ones that are, are left over, which used to be like, well, the jobs are getting taken by immigrants or these manual labor jobs that nobody wants. So I guess what you're saying is that the Mexicans really are taking our jobs. We just didn't know they were the jobs we're going to be applying for in five years. Yeah, right. And and that's the thing too. It's like, and that's, and it makes you wonder when you look back at life about what we were told growing up, right? I was told go to college so you don't have to be a ditch digger as if that's like some demeaning job. But I can tell you somebody who knows how to operate a backhoe. Oh, I don't know. They can command a hundred bucks an hour. Easy. That's a lot yep. more money than I could ever make with my history degree. You know, I had, I've, I haven't used my history degree except as outside this podcast and maybe like the concepts that it teaches you, I don't use my degree. Right. And, and it's, it's arguments at bars late at night. That's about it. That's about it. Right. When somebody says, Oh, well they would have won world war two, regardless of America or, you know, it's like, there's always like bad takes on history that I get to like crush people with, but outside, outside of that, 
all of this stuff, right? Like, don't be the trash guy. I don't know. Like the person that works for waste management makes 35 bucks an hour, has a hell of a nice pension plan, and they're the garbage dude. Doing a lot better than a lot, you know, the, all of these people that we were sold this bad bill of sell about, you know, and here's, it, it's just, it's absolutely mind blowing how quickly this repricing of labor has really occurred. Because once again, we always assumed the world was going to be the way it was. We always assumed that you're going to be able to pick up the telephone and call somebody to come fix something. And there was going to be 15 people competing for that business. And they were all going to try to be, you know, underperforming each other on prices. And now all of a sudden there's one person to who you can call and they don't want to pick up their phone because they have their pick of choice. They have their choice of pick of, of whatever work they want to, and they can set their prices. And it's going to, it's, it's just crazy to see this, like this, this shunning of manual labor that we have done as like, not the American intelligentsia class. Cause I didn't, I didn't grow up with academic parents that went to Harvard and yelled. Cause that's like what I think of the intelligentsia, but it was like essentially like the middle class who wants their child to do better than they did. You need to go to school to get this degree. And in this degree, it's going to make you competitive in the job market of the 21st century. And for some people, that is very true. But for the vast majority of us who went to college, it's like, holy shit. What I probably should have done is I should have gone to trade school. I should have been an electrician. I should have been a plumber. I should have gone and swung a hammer so I knew how to frame houses so I could go make $70,000 framing out a house in the next six weeks. Well, from an evolutionary standpoint, the human species is very backward looking when it comes to passing on knowledge to your kid. Um, you know, if we presume history is as we're told, there was probably a good 50,000 year period where not much changed. And, you know, you needed to be able to pass on what you saw. You know, it's like if you want to hunt a bison, this is the best uh, perch to get in or whatever. This is how you throw the spear. Not much changed. Um, and when it comes to how parents typically pass on knowledge to their kids, it's much the same. They look around and see like what worked for my generation and they tell exactly that to their kids. Um, you know, that's what my parents were telling me because, you know, when they were in, you know, that time in their lives, which I think would have been like the late seventies, early eighties, maybe even mid eighties. I don't, I don't know. I need to do the math real quick. People who went to college right then were like, overperforming compared to the amount of money they spent on college um, to a significant Very. degree. And, you know, they also got to watch like the explosion of software and the computer industry. Um, you know, the, the yuppies in New York, uh, you know, the, the beginning of like the stock market boom and like that. The quants like a, and all those guys. Yeah, exactly. And all of those were like college positions, um, you know, so looking around at what they did, and what was around them, that's exactly what you would tell your kids. And, you know, here's the worst thing. There are people our age right now who, you know, if they're having kids, they're thinking in their head, I need to set aside a college fund. And they're not even really looking at the world as it is. They're looking at like, well, you know, I went to college in like the mid 2000s or whatever, and I came out, I got a good job, everything went fine. I need to do that for my kid. And, you know, if they're sending their kid to school in 2004, yeah, okay. It, it still makes sense then in some sense. Uh, there's still positions you could have done. Um, tuition hadn't blown up as much as it has now. I'd be willing to bet tuition right now is three or four times higher than it was in 2004. And someone who went to college in 2004, 
has probably not really looked too hard at that and then extrapolated that into their future. Um, you know, whatever college fund they think they're going to have for their kid is going to be enough to cover like three books and uh, one semester of rent. And I'm not like joking or punching down on people for being poor. It's just going to be that fucking expensive. And it, if trends continue, if they don't continue, it's even worse. If they don't continue, it's going to be because college becomes completely meaningless and no one goes. And then again, what's the college fund for? It's not for college. It's going to have to be for something else. And I think people need to take this time and understand that the world is changing like really rapidly right now. And the best thing you can do is like look forward into the future and try and extrapolate trends and guess how things might change and may change. And instead try to pretend, uh, start, try to prepare your child for that instead. Um, and I think that sort of strategy might end up being what really ends up winning because culture is really slow to pick up on trends. Um, like right now, if you were to put a girl in a room and put five men in front of her, one of them is the plumber in New Mexico making $400 an hour and who has more work than he knows what to do with for the next seven months of his life. Uh, the next one has got their masters in, I don't know, um, uh, geology. And let's say they work for an oil company, um, probably making $120,000 a year. Uh, the next one's got like, uh, the next one's a doctor. Which one is the girl going to end up picking out of the three? probably the doctor. It's the job that has like the most status attached to it. So like in terms of like societal worth of a college degree for a man who's thinking like, how much pussy am I going to get? Should I become a plumber? The answer is still fuck no. Like, I don't know how high the price has to go before we're actually going to have a lot of plumbers, man. Just <laughs> 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 like, that weight room, my plumber hour. friend. <laughs> at a thousand dollars an hour, if you're still not getting any pussy from your job, are you going to become a plumber? Probably not. Is it, is it really <laughs> worth it at all? What's all this money actually for? Yeah, it's the so biological it's, imperative. It's what we're all really here for. Yeah, it's not going to be until we start seeing like a bunch of plumbers driving Lamborghinis and everyone's looking around like what's going on. I think that's really when it's going to change. And we're not there yet. And so when you talk about like how long is the labor going to be constrained, I'd say a decade. We might have an entire decade of this. Anyone who doesn't own a house is probably boned. Uh, you know, people think there's going to be a crash coming, but there isn't because BlackRock is there to backstop the crash. Uh, they, they're not going to sell. Like the last crash happened because everyone was over levered. Um, and they had and when, to. Yeah, exactly. When house prices started crashing, people had to pay off their loans somehow and they had to sell into a crashing market. Um, and so a lot, of, uh, a lot of assets were liquidated back in the market through the price down. BlackRock just got money printed from the Fed. Uh, they borrowed at like 2%, 2.5%. Um, they're good. They don't care. I mean, the, the margins on rental property are shrunk to the point where it doesn't make sense for most small people to become a landlord. And worse, the regime that you have to consider, we're talking about oil and gas being something where you're like, I'm not sure if I want to invest. Um, thinking about if you want to buy a home and rent it out, what if there's going to be a landlord tax? you know, uh, a year or two from now. Uh, that kind of thing might not be so far-fetched. Uh, maybe they think it's going to target BlackRock, but really it's going to target you. You know, what's some um, 1% of 100 billion? It's a billion dollars. That's a decent That's a decent return on BlackRock's investment. What's 1% on $100,000? It's $1,000. That's not a very good return if you're going to be like uh, a landlord. And so when we start thinking about what the future looks like in this current market. Like we're not gonna see a housing crash. And with labor being constrained as it is and will be for a long time, 
I think a lot of people are on the brink of getting locked out forever. And um, I hate saying that because we're in this point in time when things are really uncertain. As much as I am convinced there's not going to be a crash, I could be wrong. It's within their own possibility. And then, you know, I'd hate to like put that fear in someone's head and then they go out and do something. And then like the market crashes right after that, that's so much responsibility, you know, and people ask me for advice often. And, you know, sometimes I think to myself, like, what do I want to say? And then what could I live with telling people? And oftentimes I tell people what I can live with telling them, not what I really think is going to happen. And that's um, right. something people should think about, especially when they ask anyone for advice. It's a, it's a big responsibility you're putting on yeah, your do you want theoretical advice or you want actionable advice where you're going to be upset at me when your mortgage goes sideways? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, think if there's a 70% chance of something happening, but the risk someone takes to do it is like their entire life savings and it doesn't play out for another three or four years. I could have put a gun to someone's head and pulled the trigger basically as far as like the effect on their life. Uh, it's a lot. It's definitely a lot to think about. And I think people should really think hard because um, we're in a time where you're going to have to make hard decisions when it comes to any sort of investment you make. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things, you know, when we, when we say soon in the financial sense, that's like 10 years. Uh, but soon in like your life sense might be six months, nine months, a year. Um, just because something is happening soon doesn't mean it's happening right now. But in a lot of cases, I think things are happening right now, but it's, impossible to say except in hindsight and that was a huge ramble i forgot what i started talking about but um, <laughs> you guys want to hop in here uh feel free well what is the the answer to this in your mind like how do we begin to reverse this process is there anything that you you see on the table that um whether you know obviously plenty of government policy has has gone sideways to get us in the situation in the first place but if if you were president tomorrow and you could reverse this what what is the action that would would kind of get us back on the right track to making it worthwhile to send people to work i mean we're having that conversation now which is something i haven't heard in my lifetime where people were legitimately saying like well the whole reason we agreed to wages is because it was worth it you got something in return that was of more value than your time but we're getting to this level where like it's difficult to even staff restaurants in this area because people are like, I don't want to work for $16 an hour, which is already a pretty damn high rate to start somebody to go wash dishes for you, uh, plus tips along the way that are shared for the restaurant type of thing. And, and there's people who are, are still unwilling to even show up to work for those jobs. Um, and I mean, it's, it's going to lead to a, a dark future where this, this social safety net can only buoy us for so long until people need to start generating something. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, if I was president tomorrow, I think people would hate me because there's really only a few solutions and none of them are good. Dude, they weren't that excited about the first black president, to be honest. (laughs) At least that wouldn't be the first, man. That'd be too much much responsibility. Right. It's like Obama. Obama really didn't set us off and then uh, ruined it for the rest of us. You could well, transition and be the first female president. Could you know the, what? Yeah. That might not be a bad idea. Could be could the could first black female president at that point. <laughs> it's like you've got you you've got a free pass at that point. Oh, I, if, I double transition, man. I transitioned to Pakistani. The <laughs> 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 first Pakistani president. <laughs> see my uh, Pakistani affirming surgery, you know. <laughs> I'll get a, oh, full, there's a full beard first. <laughs> there's a side tangent. I've, I've been racking my brain on this because I watched, uh, which I recommend. 
I, I was embarrassed at first and I decided I don't care. I just like the movie. Uh, but Bollywood has released their version of Braveheart is, is what I equate to. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's titled RRR, which I, I think is maybe a weird translation type of thing. Um, it's one of those typical Bollywood movies where like, it actually has a really good story. Like it's about like the occupation of India by the British um, and the, the struggles of the people to get out from under that boot. Uh, but it also has like 15 minutes of musicals because it's Bollywood and some of the most laughably bad action you'll ever see. Um, now there was a point. Why did I bring that up? Um, I had said that I would probably be hated uh, and I was going to transition to Pakistani. Oh, um, yes. Uh, so this is a major tangent that has nothing to do with this, but this side to side shake. Any idea what that means? I can't place it because it, it seems to affirm sometimes like, yes, I'll go to the dance with you. But other times it was like, oh my God, I'm in such despair that my father was just killed. So I don't know what the uh, side to side nod is. It's not a, as simple as a yes or no. It seems to be very nuanced. I just thought I, I had see never it. thought that that was a form of communication. I just assumed as a, it was a as thing. As a but Pakistani that's man. Very, I'll have to learn that, obviously, if I'm going to be a Pakistani. Yeah, if you're going to you're gonna pass, you've got to know. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. I have to. Um, but yeah, if we, we go back to like why whoever fixes this is going to be hated. Um, it's because whenever you spend money you don't have, someone else has to pay the bill. And um, if you're going to get in power and to fix this, the first thing you have to do is you either have to pay the bill or you have to honestly default on the debt. And uh, paying the bill requires us to stop spending money first. And the worst part about it is you probably have to keep printing money while also not spending it. Um, so you'd be printing it and using it to pay off the debt explicitly. Um, and, you know, that runs into a lot of conflict of interest because the Fed can't directly pay the Treasury. Uh, the Fed can only buy debt, which has to be paid back. Um, and, you know, I don't know how you could do that at the same time while running a, a surplus for a change. But, like, you'd have to basically cut spending on basically everything at the government level. Um, you'd have to pay down the debt significantly because you can't allow interest rates to rise while the debt's high. Um, because let's pretend the government is paying 10% interest on $30.5 trillion of debt. That's three- 300 it's a, billion. No, it's $3 trillion. 10%, 10% of yeah, yeah, $30.5 Yeah, it's a little over $3 trillion. Uh, current tax receipts are like $4.7 trillion. Um, and our expenditures are significantly above that to the point where we're running a deficit of I think two and a half trillion dollars this year. And that's only because we got a lot of capital gains um, and corporate income from 2021. Um, we got nearly a trillion more than we expected to get. Otherwise we would have run about a $3.3 trillion deficit this year. Um, what if we waited until Congress was in session and then we built a wall around Washington DC and said, they're the ones who agreed to all of this debt and we're annexing them from the United States now. <laughs> They have to pay it. Personally, they have to pay it. You're not I allowed mean, to integrate back into American society until the debt is paid. It's not implausible. Let's say this wall is like a perfect hermetic seal and nothing gets in or out. Technically, all of the debt is to the treasury itself, which would be inside of that wall. So, I mean, they're the ones I mean, who I, it. I'm not perfect. Real big on, on large spending government programs, but I might be willing to pony up the taxes for that one. Yeah, I would pay for a, I'd pay for more than a wall. I'd pay for a blockade on all living things crossing the border in and out of Washington, D.C. <laughs> uh, I'd pay for a, a guard towers every 100 feet. 
with uh, at least three mounted machine guns. I pay for a, a en enfilade of landmines uh, blocking every single gate entry in and out. Advanced air for... anti-aircraft. <laughs> yeah, I'd maybe you start uh, whole, start whole booking those those quote quote trips to Epstein Island and just having those helipads drop those politicians off inside the gates. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, uh, it's going to be a one way Lolita Express. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, and the, but yeah, the we're, only we're little gonna... girls at the end of it are all these politicians. Oof. <laughs> Yeah, but we're, we're in a major bind, and we're not the only ones either. Um, between Japan and the European Union uh, and the U.S., like all three of these financial entities really don't have any way out of the hole that they have printed themselves into. And um, I genuinely don't know what any of them is going to do. Like Japan's the worst off right now. Um, they committed to printing an unlimited sum of money to keep the yields on every single one of their government debt in instruments below specific amounts and they started failing last week. So with an unlimited printer, they couldn't keep interest rates below their goal last week. Mm. Um, and the markets barely closed below, but overnight trading on the weekend was above. I haven't looked this week and I'm sure it's a bloodbath over there. Um, the European Union is trying. Uh, they said they're gonna stop printing money next month, but as soon as they announced that, um, Italian bonds, Spanish bonds, and Greek bonds, the interest rates skyrocketed because everyone's like, oh, they're going to stop buying these? Well, we don't want to buy them anymore. And so they had to agree to start rolling over their German debt and all of their healthier debt into this toxic morass. And that's only going to last for a little while. And here in the US, of course, interest rates have been skyrocketing all year as the Federal Reserve is like, we're going to stop printing money. We're going to stop. We slowly stopped. We're going to start selling treasuries now. And, you know, the further along they get on their path, the worse interest rates are going to be. And there's a point where every single one of these financial entities mathematically can't afford to pay their debt. The only solution from someone who's completely irresponsible is to just print into infinity. Um, the only solution for someone who is responsible is to default, uh, see a significant drop in U.S. credit rating. It, like if, if a default were to happen too, like it would be, massive like the kind of things that you'd be stepping through um you know because first of all there's a lot of people who hold these treasuries who might want to sell them and if the u.s government defaults those treasuries are worth a lot less um i imagine there'd be a trading freeze on basically every single asset because prices would it would absolutely crash on basically everything um in some sense but on the other sense see this is hard to think this through because now i'm thinking about it some assets would skyrocket because no one would want the US dollars. So if it's an asset that could have another market outside the US, um, it would skyrocket because someone would just sell it, sell their US dollars into that and then take it to another market and buy like a more stable currency. Um, and yeah, there'd be a trading freeze. There's some, uh, something that's called the plunge protection team, which is basically a US government entity that stops the market from crashing too much in any one given day. They've got um, circuit breakers, which are basically computers that are tracking the markets. If prices crash uh, more than what they consider an acceptable amount in a single day, it also freezes the markets. I mean, the US trading markets would be frozen for a long time. There'd be a lot of people wondering how they get their assets out, how they get their money out. People's entire retirements would be up in smoke. Um, I don't know, like, the things that you would have to consider before defaulting on the debt as far as immediate um, consequences that people would feel they wouldn't be pretty. 
Um, as a president doing that, you would probably be paraded through the streets and hung. And every single congressman and senator who spent the money that caused the problem would absolutely be out there with the mobs doing it, just so that the mobs are like, these guys are on our side. Like, right. it would be a one-way death death ticket. Um, it's necessary, but that's what would happen. You, know, you talk about that guy. Yeah, you talk about that's the a hell part of a sacrifice to make. <laughs> Yeah, someone's got to do it, man. Um, it almost like is the, the South Park episode where Kyle takes on the entire nation's debt. Oh, he just he, like runs his the, the credit you have card. To be the, yeah, yep. You got to be the new Jesus Christ. You, somebody has to be sacrificed to pay for the sins of this nation. Yeah, yeah, you would. And the worst part is you do it in this kind of media environment where people would demonize you and call you all the worst things. Um, there'd be people talking about how you were the worst president ever, and it was the first assassination that was justified. Uh, would go on and on. Like your family would probably be like hounded forever. Uh, you, they need to change their last name, otherwise, like that shit would follow them into the school. Like it, it would just be, it would just be terrible. Um, all, all things considered, whoever did it, honestly, would be the bravest soul I know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really interesting because what you're essentially what you're talking about. I mean, it's Logan's example of Kyle and South Park, and she's like, Kyle, what are you doing? You know, you can't do this. The the amount which of, is especially magnified because if you don't recall, Kyle is from a Jewish family, so taking on debt. <laughs> she's like, you're ruining your future. <laughs> That's a really good episode. That might be one of my favorite South Park episodes. He's like, we've insulted the economy. Our kids have been playing with Game Boys when they should have been playing with squirrels. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, that angle. it's it's such a good episode, but. What what's most interesting about it is kind of how true it is, is that you almost in I'm experiencing this. I mean, even with this like like local issues, right? Being on council here and seeing what's going on here, and there's county issues that are going on that I'm that I'm you know trying to be a part of the solution instead of part of the problem about. And it's and it you run into these walls where it's like, well, this is a very unpopular choice that needs to be made who's gonna make it you know especially like <laughs> like i won't go into details right now but I, like our council we are not popular in this town and i'll just leave it at that because there was a situation that happened and we made what we at the, what i think was the best decision time will tell about the consequences of it right you know it's like there's very real consequences to the decisions uh, that we make and I, there's consequences i understand that this is not popular but we as the elites need our adrenal curl yeah right i mean dude i will i will say that once you've done it once there's there's no going back no <laughs> i was gonna say your skin is looking especially plump yeah dude no amount dude, no hot. amount of no amount of like supplements or no amount of stimulants will ever be able to g- get you the thrill that adrenochrome is i mean it's top notch <laughs> it explains why you haven't blinked this whole episode yeah right i know <laughs> Okay, on a side note, there was I was waiting for one of the NBA finals games to start, and I thought it started at six instead of seven. So I just turned on the television and, and it was oh at seven. And I was like, oh, Tucker Carlson. I haven't listened to what Tucker's talking about in a minute. So I just put it on Tucker. And he went on this long rant about how the Secretary of State of Michigan doesn't blink in her <laughs> <laughs> in, in this like 45 second clip. And I was like, 
okay, that's that's kind of fair. And then he goes, you can't trust people that don't blink. And then he decides <laughs> to do a three-minute segment, and he does not blink. Because I was just staring at him at that point. I was like, when's Tucker going to blink? Well, he's not going to. It's like, okay, I guess Tucker's not wrong at the end of the day. It's like, you can't trust people that don't blink. <laughs> oh, my God. Love himself a little bit. It's, it's those little insights. But I, but I guess what I'm trying to say, it's like, it's incredibly scary to have to make decisions sometimes. And I can't blame anyone, honestly, from shying away from tough decisions because this last week it's like, Oh man, I, I wouldn't mind if I just resigned today, you know, just to be done with all of this nonsense because it's so, it's so ugly and I can't imagine. And that's, that's a local issue, right? I can't imagine what it's like to have a, a, a state issue or a national issue when you're talking about the well-being of 330 million Americans and their financial solvency and the implications of these decisions. And it makes me wonder just how long can we kick the can down the road? And yeah, because eventually it's, it's going to have to come due. The bill has to come due eventually. You can, you can pull the whole, what's the guy, uh, you can pull the whole bus thing where it's like, oh, well, I transferred the Lakers out of my name. So if you want to actually like bank, you want to, you want to try to take them from me. I, I got 200 bucks in my pocket. That's all I'm worth. You know, you can transfer ownership to your mother-in-law. But eventually, you know, the note's got to come due. It doesn't, though. I mean, look at Venezuela. You just print and print and print and print, and it gets more and more expensive. Uh, you can blame, you can shift things so people think like, oh, well, these greedy people did this to us. Um, you know, or they sabotaged our oil wells, which the government has been using to pay for social programs. That's why things aren't working. Um, you know, whatever excuse you want to make, you can. And, you know, inflation in Venezuela, we don't even talk about it anymore. I think like in 2017, 2018, it was like a million percent a year. Um, they do this thing where like every five months they take three digits off of the stock market in Venezuela just so they can keep track of it, just so the numbers aren't crazy. So if you look at a chart of Venezuelan stocks, it's hilarious. Like it goes up and then all of a sudden it crashes down and goes up. And you think like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, I just got to buy at the bottom. It's like, no, it's not going down. They're just taking digits off the number. That's it. Oh, and goodness. Here, you, here, you're, you, here, you're right about the million. So this yeah. is some of the numbers. Um, so we have a 4,000% increase in 2017, about a 1.7 million um, percentage increase in 2018, 2 Jesus. million in the following year. So oh. the, the Central Bank of Venezuela officially estimates the inflation rate increased 53.8 million percent between 2016 and April of 2019. And I guess, and so I guess help me understand, because when I say well, the bill has billion. to come due, right, it's like it could be worse. Um, when I say the bill has to come due, I, I guess what I mean is the consequences of those actions have to become apparent, right? We have to live with them eventually. Maybe it's not like a country has to default. Like you can keep printing money into inflation, I suppose. But eventually, like the consequence of those actions have to take hold in real world, right? We don't get to live in this vacuum where printing money year after year has no impact, right? 53.7 million percent inflation has its consequences. And I guess that's what I mean. Like, what is, have to pay what is our current inflation rate? 
Uh, you want the official number? I think it's 8.6%. Which uh, is more like 20. Some I, I would say, say more like, like 26 20, 25, 28, just based on like how I live, you know? But not, not several million percent. Not yet. Think about how bad we're complaining, how rough things are right now for the average. I mean, there's people are out there right now saber rattling at Democrats, and this is all the, their fault from the, the conservative side. And like families can't even afford to, to make it to school anymore to get food off the growth. And that's just a tiny percentage compared to what they're seeing in a, a place. Yeah, like but I also think, though, that, you know, it's like you can't one person's suffering doesn't discount another person's suffering. Right. Just because someone is suffering more than someone else doesn't mean that person A isn't not suffering. And right. And I think, though, that it, it's just important to point out that a 10 percent inflation the official number, let's just use, let's just round up 10% official numbers. That is a stark change in a lot of Americans' lives, right? I mean, what is it? Half of Americans don't have $500 in savings. How many people live paycheck? I saw this alarming stat. It was that it was like 25% of people that make over $200,000 live paycheck to paycheck because it's in it, because lifestyle choices, right? I know doctors that live paycheck to paycheck and because they just have so much debt and that's all they can do. So they go to work every two weeks just to service that debt of this luxurious lifestyle that they want to finance. But when you look at a 10% increase of goods, and I mean, we're talking about real goods. We're talking about energy. We're talking about fuel to keep your home warm. We're talking about gas in your car. We're talking about eggs and bread and milk and vegetables on the table. A 10% increase for a lot of people pushes them into this very tight spot to where Here's the thing. It's like I bitch about the pack. I bitch about how much bacon costs. I still go buy a pack of bacon. Right. Like I was we were we were joking the other night where it's like, yeah, inflation's bad, but it's not stopping us from smoking a tri-tip bad, you know, as I as as I as I plop this nice piece of meat on the grill. But for a lot of people, a 10 percent change in prices starts to put them into a crisis mode where it's like, I have to now choose between, okay, which bill do I put on hold for right now? What, what do I pick instead of having, okay, well, I can't, I like our food budget has, I got, I got to feed the family. So now what has to get cut? And right. it's a lot different for us as guys with no children versus what about that person who has five kid mouths to feed mm -hmm. and they were already buying great value brand products to, to feed that. And nothing wrong with great value products, right? I mean, I have no, I have no brand loyalty whatsoever. Um, I just like good things. And if I can buy good things cheap, then I will, but you're right. But when you have, um, when your entire budget is built around budget items and your dollar is now going 10 12, 15, 20% less than it was. I mean, this is a, this is a real, it's a real Do you think This is, a silent way for Joe Biden to address the obesity problem in this nation. <laughs> Chestnut checkers, man. <laughs> the man can't get off a bicycle, but damn it, does he have a good plan? <laughs> oh, man. I think that was an assassination cool. attempt. I think the man was set up with a bad bike. Oh, do you think Putin got him with one of those imported I Russian think bikes? It was Kamala. I think Kamala. Yeah, I was about to say I think Kamala Harris handed him uh, that old wrinkly piece of shit. Quee bono. He handed that old wrinkly, that old wrinkly piece of shit to that old wrinkly piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Well, I do want to comment briefly on what was uh, just discussed here. Um, so when it comes to like the American populace as a whole, you're right. Like a lot of us live paycheck to paycheck and couldn't afford to say just 
stop working for a month. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, if you live paycheck to paycheck, inflation goes up 10%. Let's pretend you make 50,000 and you spend 45,000 in a year. Uh, that 10% might push you into being paycheck to paycheck when previously you had a 10% savings rate. Um, and, you know, so beyond just the people who are paycheck to paycheck, there's a lot who just have like a bare minimum savings rate, five, 10%. And like, I'm not trying to talk down on people who do that. Um, it's just, it's not ideal. I mean, like realistically, people should be at like a 20 to 25% savings ratio. And even then, if you're up there, you're still getting squeezed by this. And we're seeing it come out in the way consumer spending habits have changed. So March and April, we saw an explosion in consumer credit spending. Um, so people weren't cutting their spending, just a lot more things were moving on to credit. Uh, whatever savings people had were probably getting eaten through November, December, January, February. Um, and you know, March, April, we're getting to the point where people are having to make hard choices, but not quite yet. And so the hard choice is to put it on credit, pay interest for it, and hope that in the future things go down or you can pay it later or make ends meet somehow. Um, so I still think we have a little ways to go until there's like an even worse reckoning for the American public. And I don't know when that happens. I don't know when people run out of credit. I don't know what that might look like. I don't know how, I, I don't even know how bad things are going to get. Like, it's still going to be way worse in the fall than it is now. Like, you know, we have so much to go through. And as you said before, Matt, like next year is going to be worse. The year after that's probably going to be worse as well. Like we just are not set up to cover any of the uh, reverberations of inflation pushing through our economy in the way that it is, especially for governments that really have no solution to the inflation as it stands. Um, both Japan, the EU, and the US cannot raise interest rates enough to actually fight inflation uh, without having their governments default. So we're going to have to live through it, unfortunately. And um, I'll, I'll leave it there. I mean, there's other things I want to say on this, but I think you'll probably want to switch to the next, next topic now, right? Well, I think they're probably say intertwined. But no, go ahead. Um, it had occurred to me in, in listening back to our, our last episode, we had talked a little bit about um, kind of the inflated value of the spending budget on the American military because of all of the programs we have and the, the little knickknacks and the silly uh, parts of diversity within the military and all these, these crazy things they do that have nothing to do with actual military um, and kind of saying, well, I, you know, that really lessens the gap between our military budget that we like to throw the number out there and say how strong our military is versus Russia's. Um, now seeing them kind of be rebuffed a bit by Ukraine, and we, we maybe see that they don't seem to have quite the military, even Russia had seemed to, to allow it out there for themselves. Is it possible that some of this kind of 5D chess move by Putin uh, in, in spurring on this conflict was to sort of hold a mirror to the West or to put us in the situation? I mean, obviously, Russia is no stranger to the idea of how to take down an empire. They're using our playbook in the same way we did it to the Soviet Union with the Middle East. The Middle East turned around and did it to us with uh, 9-11 and, and us invading every other country over there that uh, decided not to go on the petrodollar. And, and it's kind of that long game of drawing out the empire. Could this kind of be maybe part of that plan is to, to spur on this conflict so that we are in a position where we're hurting our own public with these sanctions? I mean, obviously, they haven't done it to Russia's public as much. Uh, that's a tough question to answer because, I mean, there's a lot of unknowns in there. Like, I don't know what Putin wants. I don't know what his goal was of this invasion. 
Uh, I don't even know if he's winning or losing. I mean, you, know, you consider like what information are we getting? Like, on the right. one half, people say that like 90% of Ukraine's industrial capacity is under Russian occupation. On the other half, you see things where it's like, uh, I don't know, uh, 300 tanks are getting destroyed a day. Um, I don't know which one's true. I don't know which ones are meaningful even. Like maybe like the tanks being destroyed is not a meaningful stat. I don't know. And there's other things people are saying like 500 to 1,000 fighters on the Ukrainian side are dying or being captured every day. I don't know if that's a meaningful stat or not. Uh, I don't know. I, I would guess that Russia probably wanted to be in Ukraine um, for a long period of time before this invasion. And you know, the most simple explanation is that they saw an opportunity um, and maybe thought this is the best chance we'll ever get. Um, and maybe that's all it was. Um, and if it's more than that, I don't feel qualified to say, you know, um, that's fair. We bring you on here to, to talk about <laughs> mar markets and financial stuff. And I'm like, how do you feel about geopolitics and the, the understanding of food? Let's give us some credible defense <laughs> tips here. <laughs> yeah. How do I set up proper defilade for a machine gun from a roof? Let's <laughs> <laughs> give it a uh, good I, the only answer I have is uh, make sure your fields of fire don't overlap with your uh, other <laughs> lines of cover. <laughs> I don't know. Man. Don't and know. there's nothing, nothing friendly about friendly fire. <laughs> no, definitely. Not, yeah. Definitely. Well, um, I mean, unless you all have other things to talk about in geopolitics, I did hear a question about crypto and the recent collapses. And, you know, if you all want to change subjects, um, I can definitely accommodate and go into a, like a brief explanation of what's happened. Tell us so. about this cold, snowy crypto winner then, Flirt. Well, I mean, this has really been a fascinating market move in a lot of different ways. Um, so there's one thing that I talk about when it comes to crypto a lot is there's the decentralized side of crypto and there's the centralized side of crypto. Um, the decentralized side is when you have your own wallet that you have primary access to and you're the one engaging in um, DeFi directly through a dApp um, and that dApp only has you connect your wallet to it. There's no transfer of funds. Um, and you're interacting with a smart contract. Um, and I know that's a lot of mumbo jumbo to some people, and I'm sorry, it'll become clearer later. But the other side of crypto is centralized. And that's where you go to an entity and say, hey, can you hold my Bitcoin for me? Or, hey, I'm going to put money on you and I'm going to buy crypto and you hold the crypto that I buy. Um, and these centralized entities are ones that don't have any transparency. You can't see what they're doing, what they're up to. Uh, you kind of have to take their word for it as far as like what they're doing with your funds, where they're putting it. Um, and we have seen a significant amount of risk in the system as, as um, money is getting sucked into the U.S. Treasury markets, essentially. It's drawing down asset prices across the board. Um, and some of those assets being brought down are crypto. Um, and while that's happening, there's quite a lot of entities who had very toxic loan positions. Uh, or loan positions that were very unhealthy. And they've been put into positions where they've had to figure out like, oh, what am I going to do? Am I going to sell off my assets? Am I going to top up my loans or what? And on the decentralized side, um, this is all fairly transparent. You know, you can watch wallets in live action as their loans are about to get liquidated. I'm actually doing that on my Substack. Um, some of the posts I put out over the last few weeks I've been tracking a few wallets so you can see who almost got liquidated when, how, how much. And that, that side of it's really fun. It's full transparency. Like imagine 2007, 2008, um, and you could see Lehman's entire order book and their entire, uh, their entire balances, their entire um, existing loans that they had, out, all of their liabilities. And you can watch it happen in real time. 
uh, that would be fucking fascinating. There'd be a lot of people who'd see it before it happened in much the same way in crypto where you can point out like, hey, these people are about to get liquidated. This is going on. And it's, it's fascinating watching that go on. And then there's the other side of crypto. Again, it's centralized. You can't see what's going on. And some of them in some very toxic positions. There was a protocol, uh, sorry, there was a level two, a layer two blockchain called Luna. Um, and Luna allowed you to mint a stable coin with it. So let's say Luna costs $5 and it has a stable coin called UST that's associated with it. You could destroy your Luna and receive $5 of UST, um, which was a stable coin. And if you wanted to turn it back into Luna, you could destroy the stable coin and turn it back into Luna. Um, and there was a fairly, uh, I'd say moderately complex method by which uh, UST kept its value at $1. Um, but most of the backing was that you could exchange it for Luna at any given time. So that's what gave people faith, um, you know, that like, you know, if they wanted to cash out of the system, it's fairly quick. You exchange for Luna, you take your Luna to an exchange and sell it, and you're back into US dollars. Um, now, what happened was uh, Luna essentially ended up depegging and creating a, a bit of a spiral, a price spiral. And I'd have to look, go back and look into my notes to see exactly what the mechanism was. I, I posted the full mechanism on Substack, but it's been like two months now and I've forgotten because the protocol died, like it bit straight up died. Um, they essentially had to keep printing Luna as the US, oh, I remember now. So uh, UST's value could change. So normally it trades for a dollar because it's a stable coin. Um, and its value changes, let's say it trades for 50 cents instead. If you want to exchange it for Luna, the Luna ecosystem always presumes that the UST is worth a dollar, even when it actually isn't at any given moment, um, which is like a, a way for people to arbitrage. So if the UST is worth 98 cents, you can buy it. And then you can exchange it for a dollar's worth of Luna and you can make money. And so, you know, that creates demand where people want to buy, buy UST when it's worth less than a dollar. And it also creates the reverse when it's worth more than a dollar because uh, you could buy Luna and um, turn it into UST and then sell it for, say, an extra two cents for each dollar. Um, but now what happens when it starts losing its peg rapidly is the amount of Luna that gets created in this system where it's treating it as worth a dollar when really it's only worth 10 cents, uh, basically caused massive hyperinflation overnight. The supply of Luna increased by trillions. And so I know there's people listening whose eyes are glazing over right now. Um, <laughs> the reason that this ended up being so bad was because the Luna ecosystem was worth, um, uh, I think upwards of $20 billion. Um, no, sorry, that's a lie. It was a couple hundred billion. I, I'd have to go back and look, but it was a lot of money. And there were several entities that had bought into Luna and weren't able to exit their positions as the ecosystem crashed. And it crashed over the course of maybe like four days, but most of the damage was done in the first two days. And so now let's say you're a big centralized entity and you had uh, $600 million of Luna that you took a loan out to buy and you were locked into your position, you couldn't sell it while it was collapsing. The loan still exists, but now the Luna is basically evaporated. You're left holding nothing. Um, what happens at that point is you have to figure out some way to make your loan whole, or you have to basically ride the loan out, pay interest on a daily basis. And some of the bigger centralized entities, entities like Celsius had exposure to Luna. Um, they lost, I think, 
$74 million worth of Ethereum in the Luna ecosystem, which sounds like a lot, but uh, Celsius was managing like $500 million worth of Ethereum. Uh, they had seed capital rounds that were in the billions of dollars. Uh, but this is still a significant loss because they had promised everyone who gave them money that they were going to be paying interest on your deposits. So say you had Ethereum on Celsius, you were getting 6% interest on that Ethereum, even though the way they were doing it was they were using um, something that was built in the Luna ecosystem that wasn't sustainable. And Luna collapsed and suddenly they needed to figure out a way to pay everyone's interest who had given them deposits. And uh, they didn't have enough Ethereum to do it. And over the course of a month from when Luna collapsed was like the beginning of May to like the beginning of June. Um, everyone was basically, not everyone, but most of us in the space were watching Celsius, like, how are they going to do this? When are they going to repay their loan? What's going to happen? And eventually they had to freeze user deposits. I think that was two weeks ago, which caused a bigger scare. And then there were several other centralized entities that also had money in Luna that we're just now finding out about. One called Three Arrows Capital, which had, uh, I believe, six, they were the ones who had the $600 million loan that they had taken out to buy Luna. And the uh, Luna that they bought with it is now worth like $558. Like it's just evaporated. Like the entire amount just evaporated. Um, they borrowed money to buy some NFTs last year that ended up not being worth much this year. Um, and then the worst part was a lot of entities had given them money to manage. So let's say Three Arrows Capital, which is like a big name. They were like the Lehman Bros of crypto. Let's just say like that's how big they were. Let's say you're running a small centralized exchange. You maybe hold $70 million of assets and they have invested in you. And then they come to you and say, hey, we'll manage your treasury. We can offer you an 8% return on your treasury. Um, a lot of entities took them up on this and Three Arrows Capital has been managing lots of people's treasuries. We still don't know how much money they're managing. It's still collapsing right now as we speak. Um, they are getting liquidated all over the place. But again, we can't see anything that's it's held by a centralized entity. It's not on chain. And um, we don't know exactly how far out the contagion is going to spread and how much further assets are going to fall. But basically, whenever anyone's loan gets liquidated, they're forced to sell it into the market um, at whatever price it's at, um, no matter how much volume it is. There was a loan that was liquidated a couple of days ago for $74 million, not 74, 100 something million dollars worth of Ethereum. I don't remember the exact number. Um, it basically got market sold into the market over the weekend. The price of Ethereum dropped like $200 when it happened. Um, there was another major loan that we were watching that came within a couple dollars of being liquidated over the weekend on Saturday. And um, like when I say Saturday, it was like 2 a.m. Saturday night. Um, like so when crypto happens, I have no life sometimes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> So this was on Saturday, um, and if that happened, the price of Ethereum might have fallen to $600. I'm not really sure. Um, but essentially, unless these people are paying back their loans or um, adding more collateral, which means putting more Ethereum into the system, which they might not want to do, depending on how much they have left. I mean, you think about the risk of that. Um, and then I know I'm rambling. I'll get to a point where you all can ask questions here in a second. Um, <laughs> one thing that's really interesting, so Celsius, which is a centralized place for generating yield has blocked users from withdrawing their funds. At the same time, the market is collapsing. Let's say you have a loan on um, Celsius. Uh, you've borrowed against your Ethereum, which at the time was worth 2000 Now is worth around $1,000 per Ethereum. Your loan's about to get liquidated. 
And you can supply collateral to Celsius to make your loan healthier, but Celsius has blocked all withdrawals and is likely completely insolvent is gonna collapse. That's a really tough choice to make in the moment. Do you take assets that you have in your hand right now to protect a loan that's on um, a platform that is most likely gonna disappear in smoke in the next couple of weeks? Or do you watch that loan get liquidated and lose all of your assets that are on that platform? I don't know. I don't know what you're supposed to do, but there's yeah. a lot of people who are in that situation right now and have no idea what to do. And some people are going to think that the solution to this is regulation. Absolutely fucking not. It isn't, but that's what they think. Um, the one good thing about all of this is like every single toxic entity is going under right now. They're not getting bailed out. No one's coming and saying like, here's your money. Please don't go. Um, there's a few that are really shitty that are bailing themselves out essentially, but for them, and we can talk about that later, but it's probably better not on this because I, I can feel people's eyes watering over right now. Um, <laughs> but, but essentially, there's no, there's no too big to fail right now. It's, it's really a beautiful thing, uh, as terrible as it is, um, because ultimately, once all of this toxic debt is shaken out, there isn't really any mechanical selling that's going to be forced in this market. And I don't think there's anyone in the space who says, yes, I would rather, rather hold dollars than Bitcoin. Um, we know that the supply of Bitcoin is capped. Um, there's never going to be more than 21 point whatever million, whatever the supply cap is. There's never going to be more than that. Um, you know, from that basis alone, and also the basis that no one is in control of it, there's no entity who can uh, make it do anything that isn't already in the code. Um, it's extremely difficult to make changes to Bitcoin. Uh, it requires a fairly democratic voting process. Um, and if you don't like it, you can create your own fork, which is why Bitcoin Classic exists. There was a network vote back in like 2014, 2015. Some people didn't like it. They created their own fork and now there's two Bitcoins. So you can be on the system that suits your preferences. Um, and in that sense, like, I don't know what the dollar value is of how much Bitcoin is worth. I can tell you it's a lot more than what the price is right now. But anyways, I'll let y'all ask questions or respond. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do feel like a lot of people kind of miss that aspect when it comes to a free market. And like the beauty of a free market is not that nobody fails. There are going to be these hiccups along the way, but, but they're necessary failures because you're acting in a way that is not a good business practice and whatever. In the same way that we bail out these giant banks and these oil companies, they should go under and allow for something better to take their place. But when you have these interruptions into the market, bail them out, you create, basically you're just kicking the can down the road and you're in this system we're in now where we're worried about the dollar collapsing altogether. Um, I think it's interesting that what you said, just that people immediately go to like, well, we need to regulate this because it's crazy how much money some people are losing. And it's like, no, that's what a free market is. That's what a healthy economy looks like is these bad ideas need to be flushed out so that we can ultimately come out with a much more reliable uh, source of, of monetary uh, money. Exactly. And one thing that's interesting, too, is a lot of the DeFi protocols have been under an immense amount of stress uh, with the mechanical liquidations, and none of them have broken. Like these things, they operate 24-7, 365. They're never not operating. Um, and all of the major ones are coming through this with like flying colors. And when you're in a system that's completely unregulated, the best way that you can figure out what, what's actually decent and what's not is time. 
Um, you know, whatever survives the longest with zero bailouts is ultimately what's going to be, you know, your winning play. And right now, I think people are trying to get rich a bit more than they are trying to figure out what the long-term technology play is. And, you know, there's risk involved in that. And, you know, when you call it wrong, well, sometimes you're going to end up losing the amount of money you've invested. Um, but when you call it right, or when you stick to some of the safer plays in crypto, which is like, if you don't know what you're doing, just stick to Bitcoin. Seriously, people think it's overpriced. It's not. Um, you're going to have trouble outperforming. Especially Bitcoin. right now, it's about half of what I bought most of my Bitcoin at. Exactly. Uh, most people cannot outperform Bitcoin, no matter what you try and invest in. Uh, yeah, Luna blew up significantly back from, you know, early 2021 to now. It went up like, I don't know, a thousand times. You could have made a lot of money, but no one gets out. People, they ride these things. They think, oh, it's going to go up forever, even though there's like massive architectural problems with it. Uh, they stay in there and like, Man. you know. If you that's a that's a daydream I have a lot of like man when when Shibu Inu coin at my <laughs> one million shares at ten dollars hits a dollar a share do I just sell half of it how much of that do I unload <laughs> it's a daydream I've had many times and then I check my crypto out and I go oh down seven percent oh, never mind <laughs> <laughs> yeah most people are hoping for that and like the truth is that time period it, it hasn't passed but it's mostly gone now. Um, and the, really the bet at the moment is just get into Bitcoin. If you do well with Bitcoin, the thing that most people aren't thinking about is they should. If you do well with Bitcoin in a year and a half, you might have more money than you know what to do with. And you can start thinking like, ooh, which one of these things do I want to just toss a, a couple Satoshis at? You know, you're thinking about, oh, my Shiba Inu is going to go up and I can cash out. The real answer is my Bitcoin is going to go up and then I can try out Shiba Inu. In two then years I can fuck around with these other ones. Exactly, exactly. And that's really the thought process most people need to have. So you're, like, you're saying much like my sports betting, bet the team that's going to win and take the $10 and stop doing 10 leg parlays, hoping you're going to make a million off of 10 bucks. Yeah, that's basically it, man. <laughs> uh, most everybody is either revenge trading or daydream trading. One of the two. <laughs> I like that a lot. I think one of the more interesting things that, and I mean, I've learned so much just from your Substack and talking with you offline about a lot of this stuff. Um, I think one thing that's most interesting about kind of this crypto winter, if we, if we, if you want to call it that, I don't know if that's the wrong term for it. Um, but it seems that in the short term, everybody you buys into this idea like, oh, well, this is a great hedge against inflation. But what they're not really understanding is it's not a, it's not like an immediate hedge against inflation. It's a hedge against kind of the inflation of fiat currency across the globe. And because you had, because at least the way I understand it, and tell me if I'm wrong, when you have Bitcoin soaring to prices like $40,000, $50,000, you start to get a lot of people that are in it solely to, you know, they're, they're people that are putting USD into Bitcoin to expand their USD and then to pull out at a time that they deem acceptable, right? They're buy, they're not buying into Bitcoin because they believe in the long-term um, goal of decentralized currency. They're not buying into the goal of what an alternative um, decoupling of finance and or you know, was it state and money really is. They're only there to buy into. Hey, this thing. A lot of a lot of thirty-year-olds are putting money into this, and it seems like a good way to make money. So I'm going to do that too. And it seemed like as, as more and more entities started to think that way, that, 
of course, the, the price of Bitcoin in the short term was going to be tied directly to what the market was going to do, at least the way that I understand it. Because when you start to have all of these legacy financial systems and institutions taking USD and pouring it into Bitcoin, not as a way to buy into the goal of and the project of Bitcoin, but just to get more as USD, then of course, any sort of hiccup in the market is going to affect, you know, because th- that risk tolerance, they're going to say, oh, shit, well, the S&P is going down, so I better liquidate my Bitcoin or vice versa. And and I really, and do I have, do I have an understanding of that somewhat correctly? Yeah, in some sense. And fair enough. Know, also, I, it's like better than being like, you're a fucking idiot. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you did capture the meat of it. And, you know, you know, if we remember what I said earlier as well, um, that soon in the financial sense might be 10 years, but a lot of people might hear soon and think like, oh, five months, six months. So when you say something is a hedge against inflation, it doesn't mean that like it's always going to go up you buy now and anytime in the future you sell and you're going to be in the positive based on how much inflation it just means that like after enough time that is exactly what's going to happen um but you know in the short run when you're still subject to like the next cycle yeah there's a chance it might end up lower than what you paid in for it especially if you bought in during the bull cycle and not like before the bull cycle but um you know when it comes to hedging against global inflation um you know crypto is definitely a very good option for that specifically bitcoin and ethereum um because i mean global finance will need to happen somewhere like finance won't just end just because the yen blew up which it's doing right now it's nuts to watch you know global finance won't happen because the euro dies um global finance won't end because the the u.s dollar defaults or the because we run into hyperinflation venezuela style it has to go somewhere. And I mean, personally, I love precious metals as well. I own a bunch, but it doesn't allow you to interact with DeFi in the same way that crypto can. Like uh, gold and silver is essentially dead money in the fact that you have to put it somewhere. Um, and if you want to take a loan against it or use it in finance, you have to give it to somebody else and then take the loan while they hold it. Um, and you kind of have to trust that that person is going to be responsible with it, that they mean what they say, they're going to follow the contract they sign, that their vault isn't going to burn down, that if it does burn down, they have insurance and they'll replace your assets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With crypto, I can keep my stuff on my own wallet right fucking here with me. And you know, I can integrate with smart contracts and take a loan against it whenever I want. I can use it in DeFi whenever I want without having to give it to someone else. So there's a, essentially, um, you have more control over your finances if you wish to deploy it. Um, and that's one thing that I think a lot of people underestimate when they think about crypto. People like to say Bitcoin is like digital gold. I mean, it isn't and it is, but I, I more lean towards it not being. And like, what you're really doing is taking a play on the technology itself. Um, and you know, from that standpoint, if there is going to be a separation of finance and state, it's going to happen through crypto. And I also think if uh, the state is going to use its powers to enact more financial tyranny on people, it'll happen through crypto as well. Um, and you know, the thing is, you just have to make sure you're not invested in uh, FedCoin, basically. Like when the CIA comes out with money, don't <laughs> fucking buy it. <laughs> you know? Everyone's talking about CBDCs and they're terrified of them. It's like, don't use them. <laughs> you don't have to. Don't encourage no that. Yeah. No one's got a gun to your head. But at the same time, that also means that we have to build a lot of infrastructure uh, in crypto so that someone can interact with it and buy and sell what they need without having to go towards, you know, Fed coin or CIA coin or uh, NSA coin. 
or Epstein coin or whatever the fuck they're going to call it when they come out with it, you know? Um, and I know I, I didn't fully answer your question, Matt. So if there's parts you want to repeat so I can like go back at them, that's the time. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I don't need you to report my ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. I wasn't going to rip them apart, man. <laughs> so what's your advice then for the, the average person looking to invest a little bit in big, just a, a hypothetical person. I mean, it's, I'll call it Logan Carpenter off the top of my man. head. Uh, <laughs> the, the, yeah, this, it's the, your hypothetical man. This is a time. Right, right, right. So being that obviously it's taking a hit right now, is this just time to start scooping up crypto while you have a chance, if you have any expendable funding? Uh, so, I mean, when people want investment advice, the first thing you always start with is like, I'm not a financial is, advisor. No, fuck that shit. That's a cucked <laughs> phrase, dude. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I also, I also like before you answer though, you've talked about it. It's like, Oh, well, there's two, there's two questions or there's two answers I, I can give people. It's like what I actually feel. And then what I can sleep with myself at night and Logan's just like, so, Hey, what's your average financial <laughs> advice about crypto? You know? <laughs> Hey, we can stop the recording. I just want to, do I need to be buying Bitcoin right now is what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people don't think about money in the sense that they need to think about it. And they don't think about risk in the sense they need to think about it either. You know, right now, as we're talking about like... Um, that was a yes or no question. It's not a yes or no answer. No. <laughs> I mean, like, look, if it's the perfect world and all of your needs are taken care of and you've got a stockpile of food water, non-perishables, medical supplies. Uh, you have a home that you own that's like paid off so that your expenses aren't variable and you've got, you know, lots of money coming in. It's a no-brainer. You have to buy crypto. But most people aren't thinking like that. Most people are thinking like, how can I get rich? How can I escape the this hellish existence I live in? Um, and you know, what's my quickest, exactly. What is my quickest <laughs> path out of that? And, you know, the stat answers, there are no quick answers. There's no quick path out. Um, and what people well, really last, need to be doing- This last month, it was Warriors victory parlayed with Curry over. That's where I made most of my money. Oh, hey, congrats, man. <laughs> <laughs> All what, 300 bucks of it? <laughs> yeah, not significant. I, I don't allow myself to put the mortgage on, on sports betting. I get $100 at the start of the playoffs. That's my budget. Well, in that and case- I try, to, I try to turn that into my retirement fund. But hearing the fact that you tripled it, I think my actual financial advice is for people to bet on sports. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely kidding. But like people really should be thinking about like, how do I create additional income streams in my life right now? And how do I decrease my expenditures, my regular recurring expenditures? Um, you know, that's where investment comes from. Like once you get to the point where you have a savings rate of 30, 40, 50%, and like you're constantly increasing the amount of money that's coming in, that's when you want to invest. Like if you had to choose right now between buying Bitcoin or, you know, buying an online business that makes $50 a month for $2,000, buy the online business. Um, you know, there's a lot of, and again, people are going to think like, oh, I can just go to flippa.com and just buy whatever's for sale there. And like, that's not what Wait, I'm that's saying. a real place. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch that's of a websites where you can oh. sell. You can buy websites that are for sale and like, hey, look, I'll repeat it again. It's flippa.com, F-L-I-P-P-A.com. You can see websites for sale. You can see their entire financials, uh, how they make money, what they do. Um, some of it's just like goofy stuff. Like, um, 
someone writes a review for Pelotons and it's um it's an affiliate link and you can buy Pelotons and like parts for Pelotons and stuff. And that website might make 60, 70 bucks a month. They might want to sell it for two or three grand. You could buy that and you can learn WordPress and you can pay people to write articles and you can increase the amount of money it's making. Um, if you had to buy that or buy Bitcoin, buy that, buy some extra income. Um, but the other side is a lot of people are busy and you, you can't just buy the website and check out like it's going to crash if it doesn't have any regular input. I mean, you have to learn skills. You have to learn things like, I mean, basic coding, Word, uh, WordPress. How do I get my uh, website to appear at the top of people's Google searches? It's called um, SEO. SEO, search engine optimization. Um, you know, how do I create a social media campaign to get people on my site? Blah, 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 blah. Um, it's a lot of learning, but if you do learn it, I mean, you might end up only spending two or three hours a week uh, once you've got everything dialed in and you can just keep churning in buying more and more and more and more and more, increasing your monthly income. And if you do that while you're not increasing your monthly expenses, you can keep buying more at regular rates or take this a completely different way. Maybe you go to a bar and you find out they don't have any pinball machines or um, not pinball machines, uh, pool machines, pool tables. And um, you tell them like, hey, if I put my pool tables in your bar, you can keep 10% of however much money is made in the pool tables. I'll do all the maintenance. All you have to do is show up on Sunday and empty the thing out of quarters, um, go to like two or three bars. Maybe you end up making a decent return on that. Like it could be, it can be anything, but like really people need to be thinking about how do I increase the amount of money that's coming in? Once you do that, then you're in a place to invest. Um, but really most people like, they want to put a thousand dollars somewhere and have it turn into a million. And that was the story of Bitcoin in like 2010, but we don't live in that world anymore. We live in 2020, 2022. Two. Sorry, it's been a perpetual 2020 for me. It's <laughs> been a long 2020 for all of us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Reminds me of that. I was always action. jealous of a. There was a couple in my hometown who I watched them not buy their first vending machine, but they were in the early stages of buying vending machines, and I watched them grow to a point where they both quit their full time jobs. And they just split the district up four days a week and drove out and just restocked and emptied the cash out of vending machines. And I was like, God, what a great passive income to have. It's pretty outstanding, smart financial moves. And they got themselves out of being wage slaves to do it and yeah. then showed up every other day at the golf course to come hit a couple links. So when did they do that? When did they start their investment? Let's see. I was just out of high school, I think, when I was working that job. So that would have been like... 2009. So we're probably looking at, they'd probably been doing it for five years before that kind of thing and building it up slowly. Okay, cool. I was cool. guessing. That, that brings up an interesting topic that people should be aware of when they think about businesses to invest in. If you've heard that someone else has made money doing it, it's probably too late. Um, yeah. There's this thing called margin <laughs> compression. And as time passes, the amount of profit margin that you can make from anything decreases as other people figure it out. Um, and so the vending machine business, the profit margin of those are probably a lot slimmer than when they hopped in, in like the early two thousands. Um, this is going to sound dumb. I actually looked around at it. I've got like, um, uh, when I quit my first job after college, my boss got me a present. It's a toy vending machine because, um, this is a tangent, but during lunch, we used to always have these like things where our CEO would ask us questions. And one day he asked us, um, how much money would you accept if you were if you had to go to jail for five years 
Um, so it's like, you know, someone's committed a crime and they say, hey, will you take the fall for me? Uh, this is how much, how much time you're going to be in jail. This is how much money I can give you. And we all had to make up a number. And everyone else made up these like crazy numbers, like $10 million, you know, 600 million. You know, my freedom is important to me. And I was sitting there and I was like, $700,000. <laughs> That was the number for me. And back then it made sense. Um, and like, I'd be getting out of jail a couple of years ago. So I, <laughs> I would have done better than I did at work. <laughs> but, so they had asked me like, why that specific number? What would you do with it? And I was like, well, looking at the margin on vending machines, I would just buy a fleet of vending machines and I'd be able to make $70,000 a year. <laughs> <laughs> they, all, they all fucking laughed at me um so they got me like a toy vending machine when i uh, when i quit the job and i, I have it it's like right here on my on my dresser <laughs> that's awesome yeah what does yeah. it dispense out of said vending machine currently uh, i never opened it it's still PCP. in the box uh oh yeah actually uh, <laughs> molly um <laughs> that would be pretty <laughs> great honestly for its for its size Drugs might be the appropriate thing to put it in because you don't need a large amount. Exactly. Just hit the button in it. Exactly. Dispenses you one night worth of Molly. The dispenser <laughs> fits exactly one gram of weed. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be restocking a lot. But yeah, people need to be thinking about like, how did I increase my income? Like most people are very good at increasing their expenses. Um, you know, you talked about um, $250,000 and still being uh, paycheck to paycheck because of lifestyle inflation. Most people, when they get a raise, they already know what they're going to spend it on. Um, and if people start thinking about that in terms of investments instead, there's a lot of, I would say, low hanging fruit. If people learn some basic skills and are willing to spend the little bit of free time they have after work pursuing them um, and whatever it is. And also there's a lot of this in crypto as well. Um, you know, if you can learn to be part of the crypto economy, there's definitely money that you can make as a job job. Um, there's also like consulting that can be done. Um, these entities, they have advertising, they have marketing, they have sales. Um, like I said, I was at a crypto convention. I met a lot of people who have job jobs in the crypto space. Not all of them are coders. Um, and you know, you can get in there and also you can create your own job in crypto still. Eventually, once regulation comes down, you won't be able to anymore, um, which is one thing people don't understand. Like everyone in crypto who's made money wants regulation to happen because it crystallizes the industry as it is, um, you know, makes it harder for competitors to come in and take your market share. Um, right. and Zuckerberg hand, stands in front of Congress and suggests regulations within the social media market. Exactly, exactly. And there's the other side of it too. If regulation happens in crypto, it legitimizes a lot more of the income that's happening in crypto, which makes it easier for you to get a loan for your house based on what you're doing in crypto. Whereas, you know, in a non-regulated market, you can't tell people that like, oh, I work for a decentralized exchange. Um, I get paid in Dogecoin. And they're like, no, <laughs> it doesn't work at all. But, you know, if you're if crypto is regulated, and you're getting paid in a stable coin. There will be a, like I'm not joking when I say this. Um, Experian and Equifax were there and they were in the middle of um, investigating how they could give people credit ratings based on their crypto holdings. Uh, there's going to be protocols in place fairly soon where you can put all of your wallet addresses in and you can get your credit score updated based on your wallets and the wallet income. Um, this stuff on chain, like a lot of companies are there. Everyone big is working in this space right now. Um, in not a lot of time, it's going to be 
um, I would say a facet of everyday life for a lot of people. Um, doesn't matter where the price goes, the genie's out of the bottle. Like these people, yeah. I was at parties where people were celebrating like while crypto was crashing. Nobody gave a fuck. Like no one gave a flying, I mean, there were probably people that cared, but like, I didn't, I didn't hear it. <laughs> um, I just met people who were building and just on the presumption that this is going to be a forever thing. And I think it is. Um, so yeah, somebody in the corner is just screaming about Dogecoin while everybody else is having a good time. <laughs> God, I thought it was going to keep going up. Probably. And one thing that I think nobody will be surprised by is um, the amount of drug use that I see in crypto spaces. Um, it's it's a very uh, professionally unprofessional work environment, I, I will say. Makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, exactly. Obviously, experience team isn't there on like Molly or Acid or anything like that. But like <laughs> some of the even like formal events, you'd find people like there was cocaine there. And I'm like, guys, really? <laughs> you guys well, I, think, uh, the I think in... in- the financial space, cocaine really seen as a performance enhancer more than any kind of recreational drug. <laughs> yeah, and that's been a long-standing tradition. <laughs> this is something to think about too. I hadn't really considered it, but like it's a lot of the same groups of people who are in like M and A, um, uh, major corporate takeovers, uh, finance, trading desks. Like a lot of those people are here too. And um, I would say that the kind of work that you have to do in those positions um, brings in the kind of people who. Uh, what's the word? You know, like someone can be like a functional alcoholic. There are people who are functional cokeheads and yeah, um, high energy people. Yeah. Like uh, real, just high motor people. Those people exist. People don't think they do, but they absolutely do. Um, you know, you don't see them causing major problems until they're like Hunter Biden's age, which is one thing I think about too. You know, I mean, maybe he actually was like fairly decent at his job. Maybe Burisma really needed him there. Maybe he was some sort of like, high wheeling like finance executive in the Ukraine oil business. And like, you just had to take the edge off with crack and cocaine. I don't know. Um, chances are low, but <laughs> too big of a paycheck to that crackhead. <laughs> <laughs> right. Came yeah. off the rails when he had that kind of a supply. Exactly. And also I know I'm tangenting, tangenting again. So if you guys want to like bring me back on topic or uh, uh, more into the crypto space, I, I definitely can. No, I think it's all good, man. I mean, we're we're quickly approaching two and a half hours, so I think this oh, probably shit. I think this is probably a pretty decent place to wrap up. I mean, I I mean the same thing happened the other night, right? We went for four hours, and before I yeah, know, it's like yeah. holy crap! It yeah, is. No we've joke. been talking for a long time. That's um, true. Yeah. I do ha- eventually have to get off and uh, check my crypto standings, which is uh, code for active group. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll also say this as well. Um, people in crypto, one way you keep your spirits up is you stop checking the dollar amount of your crypto holdings. <laughs> I haven't looked since January and I don't plan on looking. <laughs> uh, it's not great just, at the moment. Exactly. I just buy more when I can. And, yeah. uh, you know, that, that's all I'm doing right now. And eventually when crypto goes back up, I'll take a peek and I'll be like, well, let's see. <laughs> see how smart I was. Yeah, yeah it's that's, almost that's like been my uh, my general investment strategy is half in savings, half in crypto. Uh, hey, if you got money to save and money to invest, then you're doing all right, man. Not too bad. We're making it every day. Every Bills day. Are paid. Yeah, I mean, I do the exact same. With the, it doesn't matter whether it's crypto or just the market. I I just don't even look at it. I just assume it's down. 
uh, you know, <laughs> just just based on and and they'll be like a little sneak peek, right? It'll be like, oh, S and P down X percent, and it's like, ah, whatever. But I think that's the what you're talking about earlier. Um, that's the luxury of being young, right? I'm 30 years old. That mm-hmm. is the luxury of being 30 investing in this market is that I'm nowhere near retirement. And I plan on, you know, like my goal is to be done by 45. Yeah, I would like to be done, done, retired, no more, no more jobs unless I just absolutely want to do it. It gives me 15 years to make a lot of moves. And it doesn't really bug me that the S&P or crypto is down right now because I still plan on working and putting money into the system for another 15 years, 20 years, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, when you do the math over a 15 year time period, it's inevitable. There is only one thing that can happen. When you do the math over a five-month time period, like who knows? It could, right. could go down. Um, so yeah, when you're young, this is the time when you take outside risk, outsized risks on uh, plays and major shifts in the culture, the environment. Um, whatever it is you think is going to be the big mover, this is the time for it. I think a lot of young people make mistakes in that they take financial advice from old people who didn't really become wealthy. Like, I mean, if you're talking to someone who's 50 and their net worth is like 600,000, a million, they did all right. They didn't do too bad, but that's also not what you want to be shooting for. I mean, you want to be aware of what they did. So, you know, but like, um, you know, you're not going to get rich by just tossing money at the S and P or something like that, which is something that people do. You have to take some outsized risk. You have to bet on things that could go to zero and could go to Uh, a million you know like the time to invest in amazon was like in the 2000s like right after it crashed there's a big tech crash the dot-com bubble but it was the play of the future that was where the the world was going and um you know you had to have at least some foresight to say to yourself like not now but by the time i'm 40 or 45 i want this to be matured and i think this is the move and if it's not it goes to zero and hopefully you've got like 10 or 15 other things like that you know um I mean, my goal had always been to find one new thing every year to invest in that I think is kind of like an outsized risk play. Um, I started doing that when I was 26. I'm 32 now. Um, So I've got a few under my belt. By the time I'm 45, I should have a good chunk of those. And hopefully like two or three of them will have hit. If the rest of them go to zero, great. Um, Because, you know, my fallback plan is like, okay, I guess I'll have to work and I'll end up being one of those guys who had like a you know, I didn't make it. Yeah, you know, I came out with like a, you know, I'll retire with 600,000, maybe a million if I'm lucky, uh, just from like work 401k and hopefully owning a home. Um, but if I'm one of the guys who made it and got lucky, it'll be a lot different, you know? But like, it'd be a shame if my investment strategy topped out at that 600,000, a million. Um, you know, you don't want to do that when you're mid 20s uh, or in your 30s either. Um, you want to be taking some risk. And, you know, when you're above 40, you don't want to be taking risk. Uh, you want to be taking risk off the table, which is also something people need to be aware of. If you're listening to this and you're that age, don't buy Dogecoin. Don't liquidate your home and, um, you know, take an oversized loan on commercial real estate. Don't, uh, don't take massive risk plays once you don't have the time for them to play out and the time to recover. That's the biggest thing. And I'll, I'll leave it there. I really like it, man. Cool. We'll plug, plug your shit flirt. Oh yeah. I forgot. Um, if you want updates on what's going on in the crypto ecosystem, um, updates on what's going on at the central bank level and all of the major economies, 
please subscribe to my Substack. It's flirtcheap.substack.com. You can also find me on Instagram as well. It's just flirtcheap. Um, flirt like dirt, cheap like not expensive. Um, the Substack is 10 bucks a month. Um, I'm never going to raise the prices on that. That is what it's going to be forever, even if inflation turns that into 50 cents. So yeah, if you want to subscribe 10 years from now, you could do that. Or you can get all the juice now and subscribe now. Up to you. Or you can trade them lodging on a ski trip for a free year. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can do that as well. I'm open to that. Um, I also accept crypto. <laughs> do not be afraid to barter with me. Uh, Stripe, Stripe takes, I think, like 20% of whatever people uh, pay to subscribe. So if you want to barter, we can definitely do business. <laughs> Logan, what do you got? I just, uh, I think the, the big message I got from this is, is diversify. You know, we don't know where all these risks are, especially if you're a young person, like we're saying, and you have a little bit of money to, to be putting away in things. Um, we talked about that analogy of the apple. Uh, and if you have $1 per one apple and it increases, well, the trend has been my entire lifetime and seems to continue being that they're going to continue to print more money. So if you have it sitting in the bank in USD and they print more USD, then your USD gets a lot less buying power. So find little things, you know, whether it's another form of income to just increase that, or if you have a little bit of extra money, put it in, find your Bitcoin investments, find your stock market, whatever it is. But understand that long-term plan. Uh, you know, very few people are fortunate enough to get rich overnight. Uh, I would love to be one of them. I would love to, to plug my nose in the face of all of you when my, my Shibu Inu coin blows up that I, I spent, which is another one of my favorite Bitcoin strategies is I do like to spend like $10 that I throw in there every week on just what does, what does $10 buy a million shares of just in case that ever hits five cents. Those, those parlay gambles, baby. I like to throw a little bit, a little bit on a lot just to see what happens. You probably can't take it out of your blood, man. That's okay. We're all built differently, you know? Right, right. There's a, there's a good subreddit called crypto moon shoots. That is always, that's always just like new coin print it, you know, it's like, yeah. And it gives you all the, it gives you essentially like the use case and the title of the post. And it's like, well, nah, this isn't going to, it's like, well, there, there you go, Logan. Crypto moon shoots. It's a subreddit. That's <laughs> probably the thing that you, to throw ten dollars at. It is, it is amazing how many times I'm like, man, this has point and then ten zeros. This couldn't possibly go any lower. And then you come back and you're like, oh, that ten dollars is a dollar fifty now. <laughs> Not a grand I put in there. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll add one last thing for people who are curious about this. Um, so when Luna was blowing up, there were some people who said it's down ninety nine percent. It can only go up from here. And they invested. The next day, <laughs> it was down 99% again. People kept doing that all the way down. So <laughs> Yeah, what no did they say? How, don't, don't catch falling knives? That is exactly <laughs> the quote, man. No matter how low something is, it can always go lower. Yeah. Yeah. For real. No, this has been a, I really like this conversation because we, where we started and where we ended, I know that a lot of people might not see the theme, but let me try to tie a nice little bow on it for everybody. What we've talked about essentially today is risk management and looking at the future and the present and assuming that it will not always be the same, whether it be the 
the energy market of Europe, whether it be the geopolitical situation that we are dealing with around the world, whether it be the financial sector and anything and everything in between, it is, I think it is foolish and um, very short-sighted of us to play the ostrich in this game, to stick our head in the sand and assume that the world around us is always going to be the same. I mean, the world that we live in in 2022 is not the world that we lived in in 2021, which is not the world that we lived in in 2020, which is not the world we lived in in 2019. I mean, just go back three years to see how much the world has changed. And I think that this, if anything, this is like the message of encouragement that it's, you know, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to drop the ball from time to time. Uh, but at the same time to the victors are the spoils and um, we have to just be in the game to actually you know to actually get those uh, get those spoils and and when I say in the game I'm not talking about all invested in crypto or all invested into the energy to independence of Europe or but it's just like our lives we have to look at our lives as one of these sectors of industry and making sure that we're not too reliant on any one thing because that is that I mean that's the big thing in 2022 I've been trying to do how do I shorten my food chain? How do, you know, something very simple. How do I make sure that if grocery store inflation prices are just so outrageous, can I go three months without even having to go to the grocery store, right? Can I self, can I be self-sufficient? Do I have enough medical supplies? Do I have the right type of medical supplies? Do I have the right type of medical training to even use these medical supplies? It's all nice to have a combat tourniquet in your pack, but unless you know how to apply one and stop bleeding on an upper femur wound, what good is that tourniquet? And so I guess if anything, I hope that this, um, this little bow can tie this kind of eclectic and tangent field conversation together that we should be looking at our lives and try to diversify and try to make sure that we are minimizing these huge potential risks because you do not want to be Germany right now. You do not want to be Europe dependent on Russian oil and gas. You do not want to be the legacy financial system dependent on printed dollars, right? And the same thing, like our lives fall in the exact same way. So with all of that being said, get outside, drink water, do cool things, do dope shit that fills your spirit and your soul that makes you feel alive. Love yourself, love your neighbor, you know, be involved in your community, lift heavy things, be the best version of yourself, diversify your portfolio of life. And remember, we fight against that mob with people over politics. See you next time. Oh,